Richard. Yarp. We've been working together all this time, and you have never told me that you won an award for best journalist in Austin. Yeah, and? Well, and? That's a pretty big deal. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, you you win one award, you win ten. I mean, what wait, are you going to do about wait, it? Wait, wait, ten? I'm, I'm rounding down. Uh, you know, you, you've got to have a... Because you, know, you can't stop at one, can you? You've got to even it out. You've got to give it, like, the room a nice flow. Otherwise, the, you know, the trophy cabinets just look unbalanced. I... 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 Can I has a ward? You can has beer. It'll do. Ah... Uh. Hello, and hey, welcome to Digital Noise. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> I've taken to saying ah, ah, ah after everything these days. Is it, are you the count? I don't know. I guess. You know, I'm just counting beers. Are you auditioning to be in a Michael Bay film? Because we used to have no, 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 and then we have whoa, 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 and next up you can be going ah, ah, ah. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Transformers, it's, it's, my soul is broken. No, that's more like Newman in Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, we've got a big show for you today. A lot of titles. Who are you, by the way? Oh, I'm Chris Cox. I'm Richard. Thank you. Boy, I'm I'm discombobulated. There we go. I'm transmogrified, which is even more fun to say than discombobulated. Well, I don't know. Discombobulated is a great word. That's true. Yeah. It's got the, the bob in the middle. Bob, 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 Bob's your bob, uncle. Bob, bob. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot of titles to review this week. We are going to get to this week viewer mail at the end of the episode. Because we're difficult that way. Yes, we are. <laughs> Just throwing you off your game. Now you got to wait. Uh, and we've got a great, great giveaway for you this week. But... First, before we do all that, let me just uh, clean house a little bit here and tell you that uh, we would really appreciate it if you would become a subscriber to oneofus.net. There's all sorts of buttons all over the damn place, and we just scattered subscribe buttons willy-nilly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, really, it's it's just we're rapscallions in that way. And we, if you become a subscriber now, there's all sorts of bonus things. We've been putting in lots of bonus content, uh, bloopers, added uh, features, uh a whole another show that we're trying to decide what to call still either the ranting or the yammering <laughs> we haven't decided which yet in the forums uh the clive barker short story the ya- no that's the yattering, the yattering yeah. yes oh boy you're pulling me back there the yattering and jack was that in uh the uh books of blood i think it was indeed i think it's like book six i'm surprised they never made anthology films out of those deep voodoo yeah yeah. Uh, anyway, become a subscriber now. Lots of benefits on the way. And also, we are going to be at, well, I'll, Brian and I will be. Sorry, Richard. No. And San Diego Comic-Con. Just crack the window. Leave me some water. <laughs> so keep an eye on the site. We will uh, be right off the bat putting out a special podcast or the, the usual thing you see, Infestation, which will be basically taking over the site for the, the week of Comic-Con because, well, we'll be out in San Diego and can't do our regular shows on time the way you expect. We'll miss you. <laughs> Not that I now, not now that I broke that sight off your rifle, Richard. Aww. Pulls back to an old emo Phillips joke. <laughs> uh, Are there new emo Phillips jokes? Actually, I think he did actually do a tour not that long ago. Really? Yeah, he's still yeah. working. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure if he's any saner than he ever was. Meh, meh. 
I hope not. <laughs> uh, the point. But we will be doing a pub crawl while we're out there. We'll be hitting a bunch of pubs. We'll be buying y'all some food. We'll be hanging out with all you guys. Please uh, pay attention to uh, one of us, and we will be announcing specific times and dates and locations shortly. Uh, one last thing before we get started. Make sure you click on those Amazon links of DVD and Blu-ray titles, because... If you go and click on those and you order that item, through that link we get a kickback. Or, in fact, if you go and click on that item and go to that link but then say, eh, I don't really want this, and keep surfing Amazon and then end up buying something else from that initial browser search you started from our page, we still get a kickback from whatever you end up buying because some there's a ghost in the machine or something. I don't know. <laughs> Not that kind of ghost. So remember, you can go by Walk of Shame and, and then go, no, I, I heard the review, and then get something good instead, and uh, we still benefit. No, I don't think you can do that. No. In fact, like if you buy Walk of Shame through that link, uh, we will send hired killers to your house to, uh, to take you out because... Really, it's, it's a, a cry. Mercy. For, it's a cry it's for a mercy killing. It's a cry for help. Yes. is what that is. <laughs> you know, at the very least, we'll put they'll put your eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> then you can just listen to our new audio drama, Salt, on the, on the on the site. So there you go. All right, well, let's get right into the reviews. <laughs> And we're going to start off with one of the biggest titles this week, certainly one of the ones that everyone was anticipating. A lot of people had on pre-order, and as well they should. That is The Raid 2 Berendal, which in English means thug. Smacky smacky. Smacky smacky. There's no heroin in this film. No. I don't think there was. Was there heroin in this no, film? No, I mean, there's general gangsterism. I mean, if there was heroin in this film and any of these people were using heroin, then I would hate to see what they're like on speed. Oi, oi. <laughs> this is the sequel to the 2012 hit film, The Raid Redemption, which... Uh, the, uh, uh, the Raid. There is no Raid Redemption. Are you going to be one of those people? I am one Richard? of those people. It's going to be all like... What was redeemed? I, who cares? That's, vouchers? That's <laughs> Yes, vouchers. Shut up. Um... That's true. No one was actually redeemed. Well, I guess the main cop character in there, Eco Uwes, to some extent... You may as well have called... If that's the basis, you may as well have called it the raid narrative arc, or the raid character development. It just doesn't have the same ring as Redemption. No. You know, so they, they could have called it the raid the revenge, and everyone would be like, this isn't the fourth film, we don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Redemption sounds like a sequel title, doesn't it? Yeah. But apparently, The Raid uh, Barenthal was the original film they wanted to make first. Uh, they Like, the extras on this, which are extensive and should be required viewing for any director who wants to film an action movie, for the record. Uh, they go into how this was the original plan after uh, director Gareth Evans' first film. Uh, he was like, I have this whole thing plotted out. I think it's awesome. They brought it to a bunch of people who didn't totally understand it and thought, there's no way you can afford to make this movie. So his producers were like, look, let's pull it back, a little, something a little smaller. Can you Do you have something else? And he's like, well, I was toying around with this idea of a bunch of cops trapped in an apartment building. So they made that first, and then the raid was such a ridiculously, unexpectedly huge success that they're like, we'll just retool the raid, the, the Barenthal <laughs> script to be the raid too. <laughs> Uh, you know, and smart move, actually, I think, because yeah. Ray got so much international attention for being really the best martial arts gunplay action film arguably ever filmed that, you know, it's kind of, it's almost really hard to argue with that. Yeah. This is coming from someone who's watched most of the others that would be nominated, if not all of them. It really is right up there. And then The Raid 2, like, arguably is even better. 
I mean, if I've heard, had a couple people tell me they, they loved it, but not quite as much because the raid is very compact. Everything happens very quickly and it's all like, there's not much room for plot, really. <laughs> you know, it just kind of goes. The raid two brings in a lot deeper stuff into it, a lot deeper character motivations, multiple arcs. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, times where 10 minutes go by and no one is fighting each other which, which isn't to say not happen in the first film no which no. was if you if you haven't seen the, the first film it, it, the basic idea is gangster at the top of a building bunch of indonesian cops have to get to the top uh gangster sees them coming and unleashes his forces and it's basically it's you know in a way it's kind of the game of death plot but it really it, you know it's it's attack the castle and it works phenomenally well there's great Indonesian uh, plot between two brothers. This time, uh, Gareth Evans, because this is directed by an Englishman, of all people, um, <laughs> in Indonesia, who just went over there and went, I love Pankat Salat, which is the martial art out there, which, in, which is one of the few martial arts that involves stabbing. Yes. Um, it's a rather violent martial art. It's, even by the standards of martial arts, it's kind of like, oh, you're dead. Um, <laughs> That's the name of an actual stance. This kind of <laughs> picks up from, from the end of that. And builds out the whole world. And this is, you know, this is like going from Die Hard to Godfather 2. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that kind of just sudden leap of scale of vision. It's like when, you know, Sergio Leone goes, I'm going to do Once Upon a Time in America. Screw you. That's what I, you know, the, and it, he, he just, it just works. This and, is phenomenal, big gangster stuff with some great plot. And it's 150 minutes, and yeah. a lot of it is indeed plot, but there are 19 extended fight scenes in yeah. this film. Nine, 19 long fight scenes. So there's one fight scene towards the end of this, the scene they just refer to in the bonus features as the kitchen that <laughs> i think is an hour i'm yeah. not sure like it you can tell it's been going on for longer than any fight scene you've ever seen in your life and yet you are never bored no. you're edge your seat the entire time um the the plot here is the survivor Beho, played by the absolutely amazing eco Oase, who is also the the fight choreographer along with uh well i'm forgetting his name right now uh the guy who played Mad Dog, but yes, yes, <laughs> in the first one, yeah, in the, first the one. phenomenal creepy old guy, <laughs> yeah, who reappears here as a different character that's basically the same character. Um, I, th I think Gareth regretted killing him in the first. Oh, one. Oh, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, he's like, oh, that guy's so awesome. Anyway, uh, he survived the. He was the one survivor of the first one, and uh, he's being brought in to say, like, look. There's a lot of dirty cops and, you know, we need someone who's brave and strong and yada yada to sacrifice their years of their life, basically, by going undercover into prison, befriend the son of a crime lord and work your way up the organization and try and figure out who all the dirty cops are and yada yada. I don't I was not entirely clear why he or anyone would say yes under those circumstances. After the raid, I would have been like, I think I did my part. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> under duress. I feel like I contributed. Yes. <laughs> I gave it the office. Exactly. There you go. But uh, it ends up with him being trapped between a Japanese crime family, a uh, Indonesian crime family, and a guy who sort of like was a nobody who worked his way up and has been setting these families versus each other. And lots of violence happens. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. So, I mean, <laughs> this thing, it, it's a really great crime drama. The, you know, there is actually a good plot. There's a revenge element that comes in really strongly. Um there are also just 
phenomenal fight sequences. You could take the script away and just put these fight sequences together and they are some of the best I have ever seen because they're so innovative. There's one which is just a mass fight in a mud pit. Yeah. Um, not mud wrestling. Calm yourselves. Um, <laughs> and it, it's amazing. And somehow Gareth Evans makes you understand what's going on. And everybody's layered in mud. You can't work out. You shouldn't be able to work out who is who. But you can. Somehow he manages to. Yeah, to I couldn't figure out here. who was who and who, who was who in all of Black Hawk Down. Yeah. But uh, but somehow in guy a mud in helmet fight. versus guy in helmet. Yeah. This is like. <laughs> Oh, you're, you're all swamp monsters, but I still get what's happening. Well, uh, the opening these... fight, in a, which I think was his nod to the raid, where, where the whole thing takes in the place in this enclosed environment. Here he goes, I'm going to have a fight sequence with one guy fighting off about 50 other people, and he's in a toilet stall. Yeah. I'm just like, how do you do that? Gareth can do it. Yep. Well, that's the thing that makes this essential uh, for ownership. There are... All these extra features on here that go into deep detail with Gareth and Eco and, uh, and various other people involved with the making of it about how you make a good action film. Like, what's missing from all these other action films we see, all the Bourne movies, everything else, what they don't do right, and why you have to go back to the early days of filming action scenes, up to, like, the Shaw Brothers and, and the stuff that was going on in the 80s with Ringo Lamb and people like that. Why you have to really take those apart and understand them to figure out how to make an action movie work today. And it's fascinating as he goes step by step through these things, as even as you realize this director doesn't just hand off his choreography to his choreographers. Okay, you guys figure it out. It is like they an intricate process where every move is thought about ahead of time. You know, I mean, that, you think of that kitchen fight where, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's probably like 10 minutes long. I don't even know for sure. It's long. Yeah. But every move they're thinking about, okay, at which point in the fight are they, is this guy, is this one character starting to panic? At which point of the fight is th this guy feeling like so tired he can barely stand up and thinking about like how their moves and reactions would change. Uh, the mud fight, they talk about how in there, there were like three different character motivations going on uh, with different characters in that mud fight and how, even though they're all covered with mud, it was important to establish that there was a plot happening while that fight was going on. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing watching him talk about how he makes his films and something I know I'll go back to again, as well as wanting to listen to the audio commentary that comes with this with Gareth, as I've not gotten a chance to, but apparently it's fantastic. It's just every single detail through it, what he was thinking, uh, how you, you know, how you make an action movie this good. This should be the, you know, something that you have to see in film school, yeah. quite frankly. Like if you're planning on making an action movie at some point in your career, you have to take this class. <laughs> and then you get to go outside and burn a copy of Transformers 3. Or any of the Transformers will do. Good point. Well yeah. made. Yeah. <laughs> Transformers 4 would be the one specifically. Uh, yeah. Twitch. Uh, but yeah, like I said, audio commentary. There is a whole four and a half minute deleted scene, very violent scene with two gangs just destroying each other with guns and weapons. Uh, <laughs> When something, when you, when you talk about the raid two and you go, well, this bit's really violent. It's like, did, did just faces come off at that point? Right. I mean, is there spontaneous combustion? Where it turns to cannibalism. I mean, uh, like, start biting people's nom. faces off. Uh, there's the next chapter, shooting a sequel, which is an overlooked piece, which uh, takes a look at the how it goes from 
the first film to the second. There's Ready for Fight on Location, which takes a look at the specialty shooting locations, as well as a really interesting look at how they did the, the car chase scene, which is one of the most phenomenal car chases ever set to film. Combined with a fight in the car. There's a, like, they did it with, like, a bunch of different cameramen set up in cars. So they would do these tricks that normally would have to be done digitally that just involved, like, they would speed up beside a car with a guy with a camera, holding the camera, and he would hand the camera to a guy sitting in the front seat of the car who would then shoot, then reach it around (laughs) and throw it to a guy in the back seat who would hand it out the window to a guy underneath, riding underneath the side of the car. And it was like, oh my God, these shots you would never, I mean, just done, and they're so smooth. You're like, that's incredible. I bet the insurance company was not told about this. Well, there's a reason they filmed it in Indonesia. Uh, uh, it's the new Philippines. There's a Cinefamily Q&A with Gareth Edwards, Eco, and Joe Trapanese, which uh, it's it's basically you know, a sit-down Q&A discussion center where they go through all the details for 44 minutes. Uh, violent Ballet, Behind the Choreography, my favorite piece on here where it just shows, I mean, it shows like film to rehearsal side by side of a lot of it, how they did the action, how they planned it. This is really, really solid, and it's taking... Everything in me not to give this my pick of the week, but that's coming later. Really? Yeah, it's Ooh. so this is a hard week. There's a lot of good titles this we, week. We've had some we've had some films we've discussed in, in different and complicated ways recently and, and it's kind of a, a little bit of a blessing to have something this awesome. It, it, we had a tough tough couple weeks and this week it was like just everything great thrown in the mix. Yep. Uh and let's go ahead and talk about uh something that I thought was also great, but was like horror i had never heard of this i don't know how i missed this along the way was this at south by or fantastic this was at fantastic okay see i I missed this somehow this is the glorious afflicted yeah every time you tell yourself you know what i'm so sick of found footage there's nothing left to be done with it that's when they put out another one that's actually really fucking cool and this is chronicle for the horror world yeah um uh, afflicted is I mean, it's a very small budgeted Canadian film that manages to uh, do for vampires what I thought Wreck did for zombies. Yeah. You know, um, the story following two friends, uh, Derek Lee and uh, Cliff Prouse, who are playing you know, versions of themselves, uh, who decided to take a trip around the world for a year and do a web series called Ends of the Earth. Now, apparently, uh, Derek, his doctors told him not to go because he has an aneurysm in his brain and it's going to kill him. But, you know, he's like, look, I, what are you going to do, man? I've always wanted to do this. I've always loved traveling. I'm going to do this. If I die on the way, I die on the way. Yeah. So they're on the way. They meet up with some friends in a band in Paris. And while they're there, uh, Derek, you know, who they're bugging like he never hooks up with chicks, he hooks up with a chick. But when they go back to his hotel room to pull the dick drunken friends move and rush mm-hmm. him, the girl's gone. Her clothes are all in the room, but she's gone. And Derek is unconscious and has various wounds all over his body. It's like, what the hell is that? Well, there's no way to talk about this without spoiling it. He's a vampire. Yeah. He's been turned into a vampire. And this is the, like we said, if you think about the movie Chronicle, this is the turning into a vampire version of that rather than, because he's getting superpowers. He can jump real high and run super fast and do awesome shit. But, you know, after a period of time, he starts kind of freaking out. Yeah. (laughs) And it is really kind of edge of your seat tense as it goes along. And what's really great about it is that uh, Cliff and Derek, they are they have been lifelong friends. 
they re- these guys legitimately have known each other for years. They've always played around with cameras. So it starts by establishing their, their friendship. And you've got footage of them when they were six-year-old kids because they really were six-year-old kids together. Yeah. And it kind of builds on that. So they've, you know, a lot of this is improvised. It's very, it just feels very natural between them. You really start to care about them as they you know, wander around Europe trying to find out what's happened to Derek. Uh, they, they find some great, weird, out-of-the-way locations. There's a phenomenal bit in a, um, in a vineyard, which you can only reach by this tiny funicular ra- railway on the side of a mountain. And you can really feel they're going, thank God for handheld cameras. Exactly. Uh, because, I mean, this was, there was no other way to film that. This is super, super low budget. But when, they, when the effects kick in, you will wonder how they did it on such a tiny budget. Oh, this yeah. looks phenomenal. There's never a moment that I went, that looked fake. Yeah. You know, it all looked great, and they know exactly how to show you just as much as you need to see. And like you said, they you really care about both of these guys. You care about Derek, and you identify, too. I mean, what if suddenly you were getting all these superpowers? First thing you think is, you know, like I said, I'm turning into a superhero, not... Oh fuck! I'm turning into a vampire. Yeah. and that's the thing—they never do the V. The, the, they are very, very careful about the V word. Yeah, well, um, they do men- say it once, and it's immediately gone. Like, shut up! Shut up! Don't say that! <laughs> Don't say Don't that! Don't say that! Yeah, yeah I, I. This is a just a beautifully put together. It, it's it's one of these films that proves you don't have to have a budget to create something great, and. This is one of these films that could have just been a face plan. It's very True. aspirational. I mean, there, there's um, you know some phenomenal bits where he's bouncing around bits of Paris, just le- leaping off buildings. And then there's a sequence where there's a, a the French version of uh, a SWAT team goes after him. It could have been terrible. It could have just looked cheap. It looked great. You know, this is just a phenomenal piece of you know, and it's it's found footage done absolutely right. You care about the characters. It exceeds what you... you It it doesn't use found footage to hide what it's doing, which a lot of films do. It's like, oh no, we just happen to be out of focus that precise moment. This goes... You've got a a good DSLR. um, You can be right in the middle of the action. And for two guys who've never made a film before... This is unreal. This and is one. This is one of the best first films I have ever seen. And Just make sure flatter. you watch into the credits. For the oh record. yes, yes. Oh yes, because if we do not get afflicted to, it's because one, you were foolish and did not buy this disc. And this, this is like the raid two. This is a buy and keep and make your friends buy their own copies. Um, and this is just you know. I love small genre films because I think they're really exciting. I think people have an opportunity to rewrite the book and they do need your support. And this is the kind of thing where if you're going, hey, you know what? I've got a bit of money hanging around this week. These are two films you, you know, just phenomenal, phenomenal keepers. You're absolutely right. And it comes with three deleted scenes. There's about a four minute look. Um, This is behind the scenes of Afflicted, but really it's about the friendship of the real life directors uh derek and cliff there's anatomy of the scene the window jump which is a even watching like wow how the hell did they do that shot oh that is that is one of the that's that's the moment in this film where you where you go holy crap these guys have have taken the cheapo fan footage genre and go gone no we gotta kick your ass with it. I uh, I got to interview them and they're two guys who are really excited about about making films and i really feel 
you know, uh, was it was CBS, I think, their new film division that picked this up. And I think it's really exciting that these guys are going to be able out there making new films. It's like when it's like with with Chronicle. Afterwards, you know, you go. Josh Trank is going to do something interesting, and they give him Fantastic Four. Yeah, like, these I'm guys excited to see what these guys appear to be a major talent, and I hope that whatever they do next, they do it with also playing themselves, but just like it doesn't have to be the same story. Like it'd be funny if they always play yeah. themselves, <laughs> but it's a totally different story because <laughs> they're so good and believable as friends. I'm like, I kind of want to see them both as good guys again. You yeah. Know? Um, and it's such a pleasant change from the majority of found footage films where everyone is an asshole and you really don't care if they live or die. You're like, well, I really care what happens to these guys. Yeah. So top notch. Another film that on a different week would have been my pick of the Absolutely. week. Absolutely. But this is a good week. But let's talk about one of the ones that probably wouldn't have made it to our pick of the week. And that is the oh. DVD scavenger killers now i personally got 20 minutes into scavenger killers before Whereas I, I am said, a masochist i said this is just pretty much porn like i mean where they just i feel like there's a different cut of this where instead of gore there's porn scenes because everyone appears to be a porn level actor i mean even eric edwards <laughs> eric, eric roberts eric roberts sorry yeah. who is like in everything that is cheap and disgusting these days, even though he was in films like The Dark Knight and uh, uh, Pope of Greenwich Village. But now he's in Scavenger Killers. But you know what? You actually sat through this whole oh, thing. So God. Go this, ahead. Go ahead. It, it, go ahead. It features a, a judge who I'm not sure where... I mean, final proof that, that Long Island really needs to uh, solve some corruption issues because this guy is clearly a dunderhead. Uh, who decides to hook up with uh, the worst attorney ever. And it really is like, come back to my chambers. But then they decide, rather than just, you know, having awkward sex, uh, they decide to go off and become serial killers because, you know... Why not? That's and there's this kind doing. of weird Nietzschean thing where they go, all humans are maybe here for our pleasure. Whoa. But they're so, they're such bad actors. Oh my God. They they really are terrible. I mean, they're like, I, I don't even think they're near the bottom of the IMDb list of cast and they're the main characters. So I think that, uh, you know, I mean, it, somewhere out there, somebody uh, at adult video news is going, nope, 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 not reviewing this. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and they, and, and this is torture and porn, but it's not good at either of them. And there are, you know, they, they, the effects team on this obviously had a low budget, but it's pretty creative. There's a couple of good kills in here, um, but then the rest of it is just like, you people are so annoying, I just want you to stop. It's super cheap shot. Uh, you were lucky because you bailed. I did. Uh, before I'm, I'm the, lame, but... the mute FBI agent in a wheelchair uh, who just turns up and kind of sign language shouts at people uh, okay. who has a translator who he is also banging constantly. Uh, <laughs> the guy in the wheelchair clearly does not know sign language. There's just a lot of like flailing his arms around and, and blowing raspberries at people. Uh, there's a weird subplot with a, a psychic um, with Tourette's who can only trigger his powers by holding the breasts of a fat woman. Yeah, yeah, I saw um, that. That was... What and was... Like, there's all this stuff, and I'm like, well, somebody had an idea what they wanted to do. It, it's kind of a, a torture porn Wes Anderson spoof. It's, it's... There's so many weird things that are just like, you clearly thought you were doing something clever, and you weren't. It's horror sexploitation, 
in the vein of things like Ilsa, She-Devil, the SS, or something like that, where they're thinking, let's just be as offensive as we can and fill it with sex and just stuff that's weird and makes no sense at all. And it'll be cool and it'll find its audience. But the, but the difference between something like this and the Ilsa films is at least you have some actors with a bit of charisma and at least they know, like, we're just pushing your buttons. These guys seem to think they were doing something smart. And I'm like, well, the, you enough needed to so, have been stopped. Enough so they spent the money to get Charles Durning, who has a role in here. Or had enough crack around to get to get a cast. I don't know what Robert was... Lo- Lo- uh, Loja is in this. <sighs> uh Dustin Diamond, who's just yeah. lucky to get any role at this point, probably. I really but... was going, is that Screech? Oh, my God, at least we're not seeing his dick. Okay, so that never happened, right? That, that never happened. Okay, good. That's the thing. Like, as you said, you know, the, it seems like it's going to be porn, and then it's suddenly like, oh, no, their friend who runs a small effects company somewhere does a pretty good decapitation or, or you know they, 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 for a low budget horror the effects are really good if this was a show reel I would be very proud uh, well, if I was a filmmaker movie. but it's an actual film and it's a hundred minutes long there is no justification for a piece of shit like this to be more than <laughs> 70 minutes like this is literally it's not the worst thing I think I've reviewed on Digital Noise but it's right up there but it's so pointless you but, really, you really have to wonder who exactly decided this was something that was worth putting out. And I like firms like uh, Chemical Burns, who I think put out you know these super low budget horrors, but at least they got a little bit of taste. Uh, this really was like, why? Why would you do this? Who do you hate? Well, the friends of the director and the filmmakers obviously disagree with you with the 15 or so Amazon reviews that are average at five stars. Let's <laughs> say things like, the ensemble cast was magnificent. It was actually really funny. The effects and direction were top notch and the story was pretty enjoyable. Or how about this? Everyone who was disgusted by this film needs to lighten up. I wasn't disgusted by it. I yeah. was bored by it. Yeah. I was disgusted bored and that annoyed. It, disgusted they made it, not disgusted that it's, that it's gross. Yeah. Uh, or I mean, what I f- definitely recommend it next rainy night. You're looking for something to watch for with friends. If, if you like, if you like things that will put you to sleep and the sound of rain and terrible films make you sleepy, yes, absolutely. I don't get it. It's worth going to the Amazon page just to see the people here who are just clearly, raving about this. Clearly have related. To be, to have to be friends and family of the directors because I can't. I don't know who would watch this and go, "This is a masterpiece." Well, I, I like the fact that one of the uh, reviewers refers to uh, Robert Bogue. Uh, <laughs> I'm not convinced uh, that uh, Donna Turco actually knows who that act- actor is. Oh, Dustin Diamond was the psychic with Tourette's. Yep. That's yep. yeah. Okay. All right, enough said about scavenger killers. (laughs) Oh, my God. Let's move on to a much, much better horror film that was actually surprising that it was good, because this was a film that was all but abandoned in time. The Final Terror, also known as Campsite Massacre, Bump in the Night, and The Forest Primeval. Slasher film came out in 1983, all but lost. Yeah. Uh, in fact, this was put together. They didn't. There were no existing negatives. They put this together from I don't even know. What. I think it was six prints, yeah, in total to try and get something that was that was at least watchable. Exactly, and it looks pretty damn good, actually. All yeah. things considered, 
what the I think the appeal for really saying we really should put this together is that there's a bunch of people who went on to be much bigger actors after this very early slasher film in their career, including Joey Pants, Joe yes. Pantaleo. It's, it's weird because you look at this cast and you've got Rachel Ward, you've got Daryl Hannah, uh, you've got Adrian Zmed, and like in the 80s... Mark Metcalf. Yeah, Metcalf. These, are, these are all big names, and yeah. that was part of why they were, they were you know, the this was finally released after lying on the shelves like two years, I think, or two, three years, I think it was... But now the biggest name out there is is Joe Pantoliano. Uh, yes, Joey Pants. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, you know, everybody else seems to have fallen off the agenda. But this is like it's it starts off as quite a conventional camp movie of like, oh, we're going out to the woods. Bunch of I, I was unclear on what their job was exactly. They seem to be proto rangers or something. I, I this is the thing. It's a, it it doesn't feel like it has to explain much. And I actually thought that probably like these were kids like one step from juvie. This is one of those outward bound things where they're supposed to uh, be, be you know getting back in t- contact with nature and taken out of the city for a while because there's a bunch of rough boys, and then there's these posh girls who are English, so I think they're supposed to be on holiday, and there's a relationship between the woman who's looking after the girls and the, and the guy who's looking after the boys, uh, so there's this implication you know, this film doesn't spell everything out, which is kind of it works because it feels strangely naturalistic which for a slasher movie at this time is like, no, but they're in the woods and it's it's grim and it's dark and it's nasty. And this was shot out in the Redwood Forest in the middle of a, a seemingly a five-day rainstorm. Um, and they start getting picked off one by one. But why this film, I think, works better than a lot of other uh, slashes that um, uh, Screen Factory has put out recently, like Final Exam, which we were not as fond of by any stretch of the imagination, no. is that this has kind of got a weird low-key feel to it. The cinematography, you know, feels a bit like the first, you know, the original First Blood. Well, there's, um, there's or, that quality that that's the fact that it's not just on a campus or a bunch of cabins somewhere. It's not feeling like it's that level of low budget. They're actually, they're whitewater rafting and yeah. they're climbing giant sequoias and they're doing stuff like adventuresome stuff out in the woods. And, you know, I mean, there's big elaborate kills and you're like, okay, like if you took all, if you took the location out, it would probably feel a little, a lot more standard, but the fact that you have to shoot around that stuff and make it look good does definitely mean you've got a much more experienced crew working yeah. just by default. And it shows it. This is actually a pretty good-looking movie. Yeah. Uh, it's it's tight. It's it's taut. It's compact. Uh, it doesn't... It has kind of all the, the trimmings of the conventions of the, of the genre of the time, but it doesn't feel like it has to... You know, it's not like, oh, here's the weird, purposeless, obligatory boob shot. Um and it, it keeps the tension all the way through, whereas a lot of the films at this time, you know, I love the burning, but for a good 40 minutes of its runtime, mm. it is a camp comedy. This isn't. This is a thriller. And it's it's tense. It's taut. And, you know, you, you get the feeling towards the end. It's like, yeah, I understand why the, you know, why the killer is so incredibly horrible. The killer is an interesting one. Uh, it's even not if an it's obvious a, choice. Even the, if it's rather telegraphed who it actually it's is. It's telegraphed who it is, but then, you know, you kind of... It's a creepy design of, of Killer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the denouement is really good. Yes. I mean, the final scene is really... The pacing choices are all really interesting. And like I said, it's not shot like a slasher. It's shot like a thriller. Yeah. And, and in fact, even though it has a lot of the hallmarks of a slasher... 
ultimately, even with the final ending moments, it feels more like the the ending of a thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised. Uh, you know, this one wasn't on my radar at all, and I was never really even heard surprised of it. how how good it was. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think it, we're not calling this a masterpiece. No. Like th- this is a. Uh, it's still kind of a footnote of a film, but it's a good footnote, well worth l- looking at for people who are fans of eighties films and of the slasher genre, or, or just in general of these actors. Um, one of the things I enjoyed in here was seeing the actor Lewis Smith, who played Perfect Tommy in Buckaroo Banza. Ah! Who was really only in prominently a few films. Like, he had a leading role in some film where he was like an angel or something like that, not that oh, long after this. That yeah. I remember seeing a few times on HBO and it was kind of execrable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was always like, oh man, I like Lewis Smith. I wish he was in more stuff. And he and Adrian Zmed, who I will always remember from Bachelor Party more than anything else with Tom Hanks, um, <laughs> Uh, you went to big TJ Hooker fan. I never really watched TJ Hooker. Yeah. Now. yeah. What are you going to do? Um, there's a 16 and a half minute interview with the two of them who talk about their whole careers and making this film. And it was interesting. This was Lewis Smith's first movie. And he was like even telling them, I don't know how to act. I really don't have a clue how to act. I, I don't even, I have never even read anything about acting. I'm not even a big movie fan. Why are you putting me in this movie? <laughs> That's kind of funny. And then led to him playing one of my favorite genre characters ever in a movie. Yeah. So, Aww. um, there's a post terror, finishing the final terror, uh, that, that's about 22 minutes. It looks at the filmmakers and the producers trying to figure out how to afford to finish the movie. Uh, and then a commentary with director Andrew Davis. But yeah, this is a solid little shout factory look back. Yeah. The, the commentary track's interesting because Andrew Davis doesn't actually like the end result. He's not because it was pretty much taken away from him, which is part of what's explained in the ex- in, um, uh, the post-terror uh, uh, featurette, he's still kind of pissed about it. And there's a lot of him going, yeah, that was a tree. That's another tree. <laughs> yeah, we shot in a swamp. Uh, and I think they paid him and he took the took the check and went home. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. But no, I mean, it, it's, he should be pleased his movie is getting seen. I mean, it's, that it's, was lost. Yeah, it's a third-tier um slasher but it's very close to being second tier. Yeah, that would that's about the best way I can think of to say it. All right. Well, moving on to one that was a much better received in its initial release horror slash horror comedy, Lake Placid, which is finally getting a home Blu-ray release in a collector's edition. Little surprise it's taken so long, but then also slightly in a way if you go back and remember what it was like at time of release, it's surprising that it's it's still got this kind of Longevity. Well, you know, part of the reason was the cast here that, um, you know, you've got Bill Pullman and Bridget Fonda. Oh, leads, Bridget Fonda. Which even when this came out, they were big enough. You're like, why are you in a movie about a giant alligator killing people on a lake? I mean, they were their careers were both much bigger at 1999 than they are now. I know. And this was after they'd had, you know, one of the. Somebody had obviously watched Singles and watched the great scene where Bill Pullman, as the plastic surgeon, convinces Bridget Fonda she doesn't need um, uh, breast surgery. Yeah. Uh, and it's such a great moment where you're just like, this is a two, three-minute scene, but they have real chemistry. Absolutely. Um, as, as does Oliver Platt and Bren, Brennan Gleeson, who I don't know if they ever work together again, but they were great as, like, you know, sni- snipping at each other in this film. And, I mean, they're both incredible actors. Once again... Why are you in a movie about a giant alligator in a lake? Uh, and then, of course, you've got uh, Betty White. And this was the beginning of the white Yeah. you know, of everyone going, <laughs> we love Betty White. You know, not just for Golden Girls, because she's like 
there's lots of pictures of her online firing guns. She she did, <laughs> that she are all from this movie. Yeah, she understood there was an ironic charm to herself. Yeah, and this is where it where it all begins. But yeah, this is a very this is a very simple monster movie. It's like there's a lake in Maine, and things start getting eaten, and they they call you know they 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 call Bill Pullman in as the fish and game officer to look at it, and he brings. Bridget Fonda in as, as, as a, the as the scientist who go, starts going. There's a crocodile. You got a crocodile. That's the Jaws formula you've got yeah. going on right here, as well as a mythology professor, crocodile enthusiast played by Oliver Platt, who comes with them as well. It's kind of the comic relief, more character of the three of them. You know, he's the fat bumbling guy, but uh, you know, of course, they've got the the. Nobody wants to close the lake because it's a popular tourist location. Once again, Jaws. <laughs> Whereas Betty White is really the one weird thing that throws off the formula. But you can't, if you haven't seen this, you don't want to spoil what her role is in this whole thing. Because it really is very funny. You can see why she became kind of a cult figure after this movie. Thing is, this movie is never laugh out loud funny, really. No. It's not. It's more like smirking funny, but it's so, it's hard is in the right place. It's got that whole like... Like we under we do understand horror. We understand this genre of film. We understand it's been made a hundred times, and we're trying to make one that's just more fun to watch than anything else. And I think more than not, it really succeeds. It's and it's odd to say this about a giant crocodile movie. It's charming. Yeah, and the, I think what's what's lovely about it is that it takes the whole idea of a, a you know oh it's a giant monster crocodile, and then the end goes no actually this is just the size of a crocodile. It kind of it, it deflates itself while still being successfully scary, and yeah. I'm like, you you're lampooning it, but you're lampooning it with love. You realize you're silly, and yet you all came to, to the came to play and going, yeah, this is this is a dopey movie, but we can have a blast. It's not quite the scream of of monster movies, no. but it's got. It's not really a satire of monster movies. No. It's just, we said, it's a monster movie that just has is is has a sense of humor and not even necessarily about itself. It's not mocking itself per se. It's just got it's a lot lighter yeah. than a lot of these usually are, is what it comes down to, and therefore just more entertaining to watch. And the crocodile's good. The crocodile looks pretty damn it's good. It's a good crocodile. It is as crocodiles go. It's not half bad. Um, <laughs> I don't know why this spawned three sequels. No. no, I'm surprised there wasn't a television series. And it took so long as well. That was the thing. I mean, the, it took eight years for, for Lake Placid 2, and then they kind of rucked them out on two-year two year intervals. It's like, and, and none of those are worth watching. No. Yeah, just just bypass those and just, just yeah, I think just there was somebody big in Lake Placid. I want to say Lake Placid 2 had, like, somebody worth watching in it, or maybe not. Oh, sure? John Schneider. Oh. Oh, Cloris Leachman. John, yeah, John Schneider in 2007 isn't exactly a big get. No, not so much. Anything outside of the 80s, and you can pretty much forget about it. But um, anyway, and of course, it's of uh, Michael Ironside is the best guy they could get for three. And Michael Ironside should be a living legend now. Yeah. Instead, he has to be in Lake Placid 3. It just Ooh. makes me nauseous. But this new collector's edition comes with a brand new 31 minute contemporary featurette where it interviews several of the principal cast and crew members uh where they just kind of you know reminiscent i mean these are one of my favorite things of re-releases and i'm always sad when there isn't a featurette like this yeah where they get everybody together to go oh that was so much fun uh there's a vintage five minute featurette that's just a uh, commercial for the movie, pretty much. And it's about a seven and a half minute uh, test footage by Stan, the great Stan Winston and his crew making, designing the crocodile. 
And strangely, that's about it. Yeah. So not really as collector's edition as you may have been led to believe by well, the text. Compared to the earlier non-existent... Sure. Um, it's, <laughs> it's the Blu-ray of, of this title. It, so. it also uh, assumes that at some point they're going to put out a wholly disposable edition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the one that only costs $5 and has none of those extra features, which doesn't really serve any purpose in releasing. You know, it's so. funny, though. You know, you're talking about uh, Brendan Gleeson and Oliver Platt. That would have been much better for them to do with the sequels rather than do a sequel to Lake Placid. Just those two sniping at each other around the, the planet as they go and find different large animals to be annoyed about. That's true. Yeah, I would, I would like. Yes, exactly. <laughs> large animals to be annoyed about. I love it. All right. Well, let's talk about another. We're making a lot of horror this week. And uh, the last horror movie title we have is uh, another one that's going to really catch you off guard and it's a new release this is a 2014 film called stage fright stage fright not the old italian giallo film no. which is also worth seeing oh, for yeah. the record oh. but uh well it's wrong to call this a horror film because it's a horror musical <laughs> yes they made they said another it couldn't one. be done they, but they made another one there's yeah. been a few i mean rocky horror picture show is no. technically a horror musical horror sci-fi musical uh there's a what's that one by the director of saw Oh, uh, The Devil's Carnival. No, 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 no. That's a horror musical. Something, it's got a really long title, starts with an R. Oh, Repo Genetic Opera. Repo the Genetic Opera, Well, yes. Darren Boosman is now also doing uh, The Devil's Carnival uh, series. Uh, he's done the first, and they're like, uh, yeah, about 40 minutes long. He's done the first one, he's working on the second. Are those musicals? Yeah, they're musicals. Oh they're, they're rather good. I well, like them. The I, music's I, phenomenal. I, I'm the guy who likes Repo the Genetic Opera. So, so do I. Oh, okay. you, well, you, you, really, you, you really do need to see uh, Devil's Carnival. And I think if you like Repo uh, uh, Genetic Opera, you'll probably like Stage Fright. Well, Stage Fright is a lot more broad yeah. than uh, Repo is, which is really, Repo is pretty much strictly going for, I mean, it knows the audience it's going for. It wants that Rocky audio, horror audience so bad it can taste it, yeah. because no one has ever inherited that Rocky Horror crown. There's been lots of pretenders, even a sequel to Rocky. Did you guys know there's a sequel to Rocky Shock Horror Picture treatment. Show? Shock Treatment. I don't think they ever released it on DVD that I'm aware I've of. Not, I think there's some weird rights issues about it. Maybe so. But I mean, I used to have the old VHS copy of it, but um, I'd still watch that a hundred times. Little Black Dress. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is no successor to Rocky Horror Picture Show because that had that. I mean, in, in the dictionary under Je ne sais quoi, there's a picture of the poster to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Because really, we don't know why that was a huge success. It was. Um, Repo was another attempt to do that. Stage Fright is a lot more simple. It's more of a let's do high school musical as a horror movie. Seems to me like what someone was thinking. Or, um, you know, the Once More With Feeling episode of Buffy. Yeah. I think that's, that's big over its shoulder as well. It's, you know, uh, you know in, in the way that um, Final Terror is a very unconventional camp movie, a summer camp movie, this is a quite conventional summer camp slasher movie. Uh, yeah, it just, just so happens people. to be a musical. Yeah, and the, one of my favorite moments is when all the kids get to summer get to summer camp because this is this is theater camp, and you're like you're going to die, you're going <laughs> to die, and you're going to die tunefully. Um, it's it, it's <laughs> what a way to go. It's kind of the burning crossed with fame 
I think is probably the best way to describe it. Okay. <laughs> Except without any of the serious drama of fame. Yeah. Or the burning. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like the Valerie Schwartz like episodes said, of, of, uh, of fame. I just know? think horror version of High School Musical is what it felt like to me. Yeah. Not, I mean, High School Musical is fun for what it is. It's outside of our generational, you know, appeal. But it's still like, okay, well-written songs, you know, tuneful enough, as it were. A lot of energy and, and actors with a lot of viv. Um, and whereas I think you're getting a mixed bag of actors in this one here, to be sure. Yeah. And certainly way too telegraphed of a killer scenario. I mean... In fact, do do us a favor. Do not look at the publicity still for this photo because yeah. it gives away pretty much the last third of the movie. And I was actually, I actually took this up with the PR people and went, why have you done this? So look at the cover. Don't look at the back because I'm pretty sure they actually botched the ending for you if they do that. Uh, um, the you know, idea here being is that 10 years ago, Broadway diva played by Minnie Driver, opened a version of Phantom of the Opera. They call the haunting of the opera here for obvious legal reasons. And... Um, that night backstage, she's murdered by somebody wearing the mask of, you know, the, the phantom, basically. Uh, the opera ghost, as they say. Switch to then 10 years later and is her two, uh, twin children, Camilla, played by Allie McDonald, and Buddy, played by Douglas Smith. Buddy? They're teenagers and they work at a summer camp, uh, that's about to go bankrupt that's run by Meatloaf. Yay! Who was the old, uh, I guess, uh, theater manager for Mini Driver's show back in the day, but he kind of lost all that shit when she was murdered on opening night. Um, so they're, when she finds, even though they just work in the kitchen, when they find out, uh, there's going to be, they're going to do a kabuki version of the haunting of the opera, she decides she's going to try and sneak into the, uh, Camilla decides she's going to try and sneak into the auditions because for her, it feels like this is the way to get closer to her mom, that she's always loved the theaters and dreamed when she was a child of being part of it as well. Of course, when she does that, suddenly the kabuki or the, the, the opera ghost reappears, except now with a metal attitude. Yeah. You know, wearing a really cool kabuki, like sort of demon kabuki mask with long hair, uh, and starts offing the over exuberant teenagers one at a time. Left, right, and center. Yeah. And of course, the mystery is who is the killer? Is he heading for Camilla? Is he heading for Meatloaf? What is his goal? Is he just generally annoyed by musicals? Uh, well, actually, that is a big part of it. Is he's, it is. He's, he's a hatred of musicals. He doesn't which, really like musicals at all. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not that way, but if it's you, I can't really say you're wrong. For you, that's absolutely true, and you should probably go on a killing spree. No, like Andrew Lloyd Webber is wrong. That's yeah, just that's morally true. wrong. I Did mean, you see it, they're doing they're rewriting cats so it's all like sort of hip hop now? I swear well, to you this is true. Work for the Wiz. Yeah. No, it didn't. Or maybe it was an onion story. I don't know. I worked I don't know. I saw it in passing. <laughs> I mean, it sounds it sounds plausible. It sounds plausible, yeah. I mean this is the thing. I, I this is a film made by people who have obviously been see Phantom of the Opera a few times, but realize it's ludicrous. Yeah. It kind of, it takes pot shots at, uh, at kind of musical theater culture and amateur dramatics and theater camp in a way that only people who've been through that nonsense can, can understand it. I, you know, I, it's, it's a fun romp. Uh, it's, it, you know, some people didn't really like it a lot at all. It really annoyed some people, which I was kind of like, yeah, this is innocuous enough. Uh, it's, it's, pleasurable um I mean, some of the musical yeah. numbers are great the, like i said the one where the kids get off and, they, and they're like finally we're at summer camp and we can actually be ourselves as embarrassing as ever as well and we're not going to get beaten up and then you suddenly find out no even within band geeks there is a hierarchy of course i actually went to theater camp myself when i was around like 
12 or 13. Oh, I can tell you bless. there was definitely a hierarchy. Bless. Uh, and it was awesome. That was the best camp ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like, really, they, like, teach you to play musical instruments and you're in plays and shit and get to, like... Please tell and, me you don't have a, have a story that starts, and then one time, in band camp. Yeah, well, I don't have a pussy, so... Well, or a flute. I'm a monkey, and I did not stick a flute in him. No. So, uh, but the, let me tell you this. If you, like, are interested in having sex with a lady or with a man uh, at a younger age, theater camp is a good place to start. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's something about that community of actors and singers and people involved. Desperation with, and loneliness? I, I, it just makes people horny. Sen- sense just, for affirmation? It just makes people horny. Yeah. I think I'm just going to go simply that. There's something. It's it's. Something well, so I went to an old boys' school, so really that was not happening. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, sex is looked down on in Britain in general, right? Only if you can get a seat, a front row seat. <laughs> anyway, um, I agree with you. I think the songs are a mixed bag. Some are funnier than others. Um, it's that I, it all feels so innocent and well-intentioned that I think I like it more than it deserves to be liked to some degree. It just felt like it needed another polish or two. Yeah. Uh, and that's its biggest problem. It just is a little unpolished. Um, and the songs definitely needed a little bit more work. But yeah, lots of points. I really liked it. And it's funny, during the end credits, they redo every song on the soundtrack but as if they were done by the the metalhead killer. Yep. You know, <laughs> <laughs> which is fun. Um, but there's lots of extras on here. Commentary with uh, writer-director, co-composer Jerome Sable, and co-composer Eli Battalion. Uh, there's a... Uh, Nine and a half minute making of stage fright with the film's producers who talk about the film as well as Meatloaf and Mini Driver. Uh, del- two deleted scenes. There's a cute thing in memory of a fallen camper where they say some campers were killed by the filmmakers when their scenes were removed during editing. So it's th- this one character who was supposed to be, um, uh, what's her name? Like who thought she was Ju- Liza Minnelli? Yeah, you kind of she's just there in passing in here. But there was a little extensions to all these scenes that made that kind of a subplot that were completely cut. So ultimately, this actress was given nothing to do in the Aww. film. So it's kind of although a, she was still quite fun actually. She was she, she just turns up and you're like you you are a you are a one note character. But yeah. the fact that you get to theater camp and you go I can dress like Liza from moment one is is that's pretty. It's, the, there's a lot of that kind of humor. Uh, agreed. Uh, evolution of the set design, which was actually quite quite good i thought yeah uh, of course a stage fright sing-along as you now have to have by default with anything with movie with uh any movie with songs in it interview with writer director co-composer gerard jerome Sam- sable and co-composer eli battalion i want my last name to be battalion that's awesome uh axs tv a look at stage fright which is a regular promo and then trailers and what have you so like really a solid set of extras yeah. for a film that i just kind of snuck out <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it didn't come out with much fanfare, and but no, it's it's you know, I think it's a, 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 a everybody involved can actually sing as well. There's no auto tune nonsense here. Mini Driver True. has to coin to use a phrase my mother used a fine set of lungs on her. She does indeed. She does. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go to our last horror-related title this week, and that's a TV series. All you maybe horrible to think about watching, uh, Witches of East End, the second drama, I believe, second like continuing drama on the Lifetime Network. Okay. Oh, goody! In my own defense. I had actually read some pretty good things about this from some people saying, you know what? Keep it up, Sparky. This uh, <laughs> this is like the Vampire Diaries, but actually kind of fun sometimes. 
Uh, and true enough, this is ravaging the plot of the Vampire Diaries, just doing it in reverse, where instead it's the girls who have the powers and the two brothers, one of whom is all good and sweet and one of whom is the bad boy, who are both in love with the same girl, have no clue that the girl and her family are witches. They're just kind of clueless in general. Uh, but that's the plot of the Vampire Diaries, basically. Uh, it's very, very soapy. And yet... It's actually got a lot more charisma with almost everybody in it and a lot more just, you know, it feels like they were actually just having fun making this. Like the other thing that this steals from a lot is, of course, Charmed, which is goes without saying. And this has the one thing I'll say for Charmed. And it's still the title from Witches of Eastwick, right, clearly. Totally. Which would be like, really? Uh yeah, well, it's Lifetime Network. They've never been the most original <laughs> of networks. Uh Just wait. Pedals on the Wind is coming up soon. Um Ooh. It just looks like they're having more fun, and it doesn't hurt. You've got Julia Ormond, who's a wonderful actress, playing uh, Joanna Bouchamp, who is the matriarch of this family of witches, who has never told her two daughters. Freya, played by the holy shit knockout G- uh, Jenna Dewan Tatum, which is Channing Tatum's wife, yeah. uh, and Ingrid Beauchamp, played by Rachel Boston. So m- Mrs. Charming Potato. Right? Exactly. (laughs) Um, He only has eyes for her. (laughs) I know, I can't believe I made a potato eyes joke. (laughs) Have you got a show to review? I do, I believe I do. Uh, The idea is they don't know at first, but then some things start going on. It turns out there's a shapeshifter in town that's trying to frame the mother to look like she's a killer uh, and is, for whatever reason, just targeting this family. The plot of the whole first season is basically, who is the shapeshifter? Why is she doing this? Uh, and And the two daughters going, figuring out, wow, oh my god, we're witches. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, they also introduce, as a regular character as the family, the long estranged sister, Wendy, played by uh, Madchen Amick. Do you know who that is? Really? I haven't heard that name in fact. Ever. She played Shelly Johnson on Twin Peaks she as did. like a ni- 18, 19 year old girl. Good grief. I have literally have not thought about her in decades. And I was, it was driving me crazy. I was like, who is that? Who is that? I, it's like one of those she's familiar but not familiar. And I can't, do I really know who she is or does she just look like somebody that finally gave up and looked it up? I was like, holy shit. I can't believe that's Shelly. Yeah. You know, to my, in my head, she'll always be Shelly. Yeah. You know, and she's, Absolutely gorgeous as, you know, in her, I guess she's probably got to be like, you know, near 40, if not in her early 40s, just a knockout. I mean, all these girls are are really beautiful and they're all pretty good actors on the whole, which really surprised me for a Lifetime Network production. (laughs) It's not what you go automatically. But, you know, I think one of the things I liked about this more than, say, once again, The Vampire Diaries, which you cannot help but compare it to, is that The Vampire Diaries is stuck with vampires it's a little bit more limited with what's going on with the rules of this is what vampires do. They don't go around casting fireballs and shit. Yeah. Um, witches could be anything, you know, and they, they do, they, they just go crazy. In fact, and I'm just going to minor spoiler here. It turns out they're all Asgardians. I am not kidding. Uh, they're uh, all from Asgard. Really? Yeah. They're all like, like, like you, it's clear at the beginning, like, uh, uh, Joanna and Wendy are hundreds, maybe thousands of years old. Uh, and that the daughters, keep dying in their early 20s and by like various and sundry and then she becomes pregnant automatically without having sex with anyone the mom and it's always them again and they grow up so, again hang on her, this her time, young daughters ineptly get ineptly killed so they've also taken the a key plot point from the venture brothers as well 
Yes, kind of, yes. Yeah. Except now magic is involved instead of science. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they, they, Do they this, have a hilarious montage of various different deaths through the ages? Th- no, but it does come up sometimes, <laughs> where you get to see the various ways that they died. And of course, that's going to be a plot point with other further seasons, because in this one, one of those specific deaths and existences previously with Ingrid is a major plot point for what ends up happening along the line of the story. You know, it's it's campy, but not too campy to be like, throw it all out the window. It's got good performances. It's got writing that just wants you to have fun. It's soapy beyond measure. But if you can put up with that, it's actually not too bad of a show. Yeah. I found myself at the end of it going, fuck, I'm going to go download the first episode of the new season and so, see what happens. So if this was on ABC, you'd, 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 you'd give it, more people would have given it a shot, do you think? Probably. I mean, it got renewed. So, yeah. you know, um, like I said, I had fun with it. There's lots of uh, familiar people who, who, you know, television types who appear in extra roles. The guy who was the priest in the V miniseries has a role, big role in Oof. here. Um, uh yeah, what's his name? Um, the, the ah, it's killing me. The guy who was the the computer animated guy in the eighties who would double speak and go. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, Max Hedrum. Max Hedrum. That yeah. actor is in here playing a role. I mean, like almost everybody, and you're like, okay, that's a very familiar TV actor I've seen before. And it's all very competently done. I don't know. I liked it, and you can be mad at me for liking it if you want, but I kind of got sucked into it, despite getting a little irritated at points by the extreme level of soapiness going on. I mean, whenever it goes back to the love triangle, you're like, ugh. But they've actually, right at the end, they do something that's going to shake it up in a way that'll actually make it much more tolerable. So, (laughs) there you go. All right, so let us move on from there. No more horror, sorry. Well, sort of horror. I guess, you know, fuck it, let's go ahead and go to this one next since we're talking TV and talk about Helix Season 1, which is pretty much every TV series made all in one show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just ball them all up, crunch them in a tight, compact ball, and let it just out. (laughs) You know... When this TV series on sci-fi started, they were marketing like this, like this was going to be the reinvention of sci-fi television. Yeah. You know, I mean, really, I mean, at Comic-Con last year, I remember it was like everywhere. And like, there was lots of like extra stuff about it and like saying this is going to change the way you look at television. And it's funny because the first two or three episodes feel like they're trying to do a very hard sci-fi film, uh, sci-fi series. Uh, which is to say very scientifically accurate, very serious about like viruses and the ways that they could go horribly wrong and like uh, possible end of the world scenarios. And I actually found myself kind of bored by it. I was like, okay, I mean, I guess we need a show like this, but this is really not my thing. And it doesn't help that I think Billy Campbell is a super subpar actor. Yeah. Like, wow, you are not great playing the lead scientist from the CDC who has appeared at this Whisper slash mumbles all the time. All the time. Constantly. Uh, uh, I mean, at least you have another regular television actor, uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, who plays uh, Dr. Hiroshi, who is the uh, head of this facility there, who is very character from Lost-ish. Um (laughs) <laughs> he's incredibly evil. You can tell when he turns up. He's like, oh, he may be, he may be the evil corporate scientist bad guy. Ooh. Oh, or is, is he? he? <laughs> ah. Because that's the thing about this show. 
it can't make up its mind about a fucking thing. <laughs> I mean, every character in here, there is no telling who's actually good, who's actually bad. And the biggest problem with that is that they change, turn on a dime. Yeah. Man, there's one character in here, uh, uh, Major Sergio Balaceros, played by Mark Ganame. What a name, huh? Um, and he's like a really, really good guy. And then he's a super, super bad guy. Like, I mean, like evil to the point of blah. And then just instantly is like, nope, I'm a super good guy again because I decided I'm going to be. Yeah. I like, what? There is some narrative coherence. I mean, this basically, it's it feels like a very, very long X-Files episode. Uh, or it feels like a very, very long made-for-the-Sci-Fi-Channel movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the basic idea is, you know, that the evil research base uh, being run by a corporation at the, uh, uh, in the Antarctic, and they call the CDC because something horrible has happened, and then they, they the CDC sends their team down, but the company doesn't really want to work with them because they're obviously up to something very, very suspicious. You know, there's some entertaining elements to this. Oh, it's, no question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's... You know, In fact, I would argue the goofier and more unrealistic this becomes, the more enjoyable it is to watch in some ways. I, yeah, I mean, they kind of land themselves the problem that this, is, uh, this love four-way box thing yeah. uh, where the major character, his brother, is one of the first people infected and the two people he brings down from the CDC with him are his ex-wife and uh, his possible current girlfriend. Yeah, his protege who is clearly has the, clearly has the hots, hots for him. him. So, yeah, and that's a little bit awkward. But then there's this other assistant they bring down with him who basically is... It's the kind of part I wish Melissa McCarthy was still getting because it's just it's just this woman being sardonic all the time and not making stupid ignorant jokes. Uh, there's some fun plots with monkeys, and this thing that like every so often when you're like, ah, oh, is this really going to pay off? There's a great visual. There's a really stellar image where you go, okay, the production designer should probably be more in charge of this, like a a forest of frozen monkeys which is genuinely creepy yeah and heads in in cryogenic jars where you go oh hang on that's and, kind of ugh. well the this is one of these shows that is well i mean it's by ronald d moore who i believe was uh, one of the main guys uh, behind uh, battlestar galactica who proved that he likes to design big shows and show run big shows that he has no idea where he's going with them and I think that this is taking as many notes from that as it is from Lost in the sense that it feels like they are more interested in setting up mysteries than they are in actually answering anything. I mean, there's by the end of the first season, there are so many mysteries that they've got open and then they pull this and you haven't seen the last episode yet. Not yet. But they pull this like I was talking earlier about character switch arounds where it's like, oh, it turns out they're not who you thought they were at all. That's very like seriously how could that possibly be that way <laughs> i was like i don't even know if i want to watch the next season now after that move but there's a lot of really cool you're right visual stuff like one of the things that the mysteries is uh the main character something is different about him is he an alien is he genetically enhanced where he's got these silver eyes and we discover he's got the capacity to give them to other people sometimes and it's related to the virus somehow but we don't know how i mean i can't it would take 20 minutes to list all the questions at some point you've got to bring at least one mystery into land just to give people a a belief that you're that's what you care about yeah and i'm getting the feeling we're not getting any of that 
from season one at all. And this is, it's not only like a, like a, uh, you know, scientists trying to figure out a cure for a virus movie. It's also a, uh, zombie, uh, film, like fast moving zombie thing. Like Ugh. the whole center part of it is humans versus fast moving zombies. It's until not eventually, a zombie they, if it's fast. And then eventually they become more sentient and organized. So I don't know what you call that. Um, they're more like the vampires in 30 days of night, I guess would be I, more accurate. I hate, uh, hate fast zombies because it's not a zombie. I, I don't. Uh, it drives me so mad because I, if, you, if you're saying that fast zombie is is a fast ravenous thing that hasn't died yet is a zombie, then you have to reclassify uh, David Cronenberg's Rabbit as a zombie movie, and that's not a zombie movie. So let's stop this shit right now. Sorry, this is just a point of annoyance for I me. Don't care like about zombies that. are dead and they shan't. I don't care about the tautology of it at all. Oh, it drives me. You mad. know what? You can call it whatever you want. I just care about the movie. Yeah, <laughs> call them Fombies if you want. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> the Fombie ran, run, Fombie run. <laughs> um, but then you've got like evil giant corporation with evil minions coming in trying to like uh, steal science and shut everybody down. But are they aliens? And you've got a Highlander movie kind of sneaking its way into the last third of it. You're like, what the fuck is this series about? I watched the whole first season and I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's so goofy. I mean, it's just ridiculously goofy that it's hard not to keep watching episodes of it to some degree, but there's that point I go, but am I really going to make the effort in 2000 winter of 2015 when season two starts to like remember everything that happened and get back into it i don't know i really don't it's not that grabbing it's more of a sort of like for right now i'm having a certain amount of fun with this yeah but i don't know you obviously felt a little stronger about it positively uh, than i did I, I i like to feel there's some potential and you're kind of telling me there's not i mean i i am a little bit concerned that you know even relatively early on in the series there's just let's la- let's dump more weirdness on there but there's the potential for going okay if we use the right characters we take this in the right direction it could be interesting i'm very concerned about how they build out for for season two because it is kind of a you know a closed contagion um, series. So where do you go from that? Well, you... season two is completely going to be in a... I mean, there's no way it's going to be in the same place. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. They make it very clear season two. But do they do the same kind of thing again? Well, right, or do so they you know build every that... episode goes day one, day two, day yeah. three. Well, episode 13 starts and ends with episode day or day 258 or something like that uh, that shows like okay this is what's going to happen basically but can next they season. afford to do something that's like a that's a very it, valid question sci-fi but you know at the same time i'm not sure and they've if, still got to spend money on defiance uh, which sony pictures lot... is the one who are actually producing yeah, this. Really? much how battlestar galactica was not actually produced by sci-fi channel but was produced yeah. by an outside but sci-fi is, sci-fi is more committed to defiance they've got their big mmo defiance I, is a damn good show defiance it defines a little rocky bit of a star yeah once it found out it worked out what it wanted to do yes and and it's it's become one of the it's, you know, it's the best series about world building i think we've seen in a long it's time it's farscape on a planet yeah in, instead of in a ship yeah and that is great i'm yeah. all for that oh and uh, rumors are that they they are actually getting a farscape film together so, i have yay! heard this yes and maybe even a second series yep that's the rumor that it would be about Crichton's son 
And if, if, see it happen. <laughs> if, you, if you have, if you haven't watched Farscape and you have Netflix, uh, watch the whole damn thing, and then go on Amazon, uh, clicking through. Don't forget one of us. Stop that, um, <laughs> and go f- uh, and get the uh, concluding series, Peacekeeper Wars, because that's not actually on Netflix at the moment. Uh, or pick up the. Uh, they just did a monster box set release. Oh, so nice! Fully recommend. Yeah. If you like smart, uh, occasionally pretty damn edgy. Uh, sci-fi with great puppets and wonderful, wonderful uh, intergalactic yeah, conflict. Get Farscape. That that series will change your world. The interesting and controversial decision to instead of using CG aliens that were very unhuman to use completely puppeted, all done by the Jim Henson workshop, for me worked like gangbusters. Yes, yeah. I was like, what's not to like? Remember Yoda or? pretty much every alien in Star Wars, well, there you go. <laughs> and season three, when they, they got an increased budget and, and revamped the, uh, the, the puppets, just at that, from that point on, you know, it's Star Trek I did good. miss the blue check, though. A uh, lot. Yeah. A lot. But, it, it, I mean, this it's a series that's Star Trek good and it doesn't have Star Trek recognition. It's phenomenal. And the central cast is brilliant. Uh, so, basically, it, it, I, so think, I think it tells Helix. everything you need to know <laughs> that we've just gone on about, uh, to praise um, both Defiance and Farscape more than we have Helix. Yeah, so I wish eh. the show was better. I do. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed where Sci-Fi Channel was going before with their shows, where it was a shared universe, where it all had a sort of sense of humor about itself. I was really enjoying that, and they buried it. I just, love you, Warehouse 13. So come much. back to me. I know. I wish they would come bring it back one last time. Isn't it really sad that the guy who was the, uh, the sheriff in... Um, Eureka is now the Maytag man yeah. in the adverts. That's just that's like what's his face who was so good in uh, Oz is now chaos in the State Farm adverts. Um, like, oh, what is wrong with? That's the with- thing. Eureka, so much fun, yeah. so charming, loved it. Buried Alpha's never even given a chance, no. and it was a super fun, really cool show. And it was all part of that shared universe. I was somebody somewhere changed jobs at a high level at Sci-Fi Channel is what I'm thinking, and they went, "Nope, we want to do much more serious stuff." Which is why we get Helix, and it's nowhere near as good. No, nope. so sorry. Man, lots sorry. of bonus stuff on here. Lots of deleted scenes and interviews with everyone involved making it. Lots of supplemental material about how they did the visual effects, which are only occasionally good, <laughs> and occasionally <laughs> awful. Um, like I can't figure out like. A lot of the effects here are like pre fifteen years ago television bad. Yeah, you know? like Babylon Five era bad. I'm like, why is it this bad? Yeah, but I, I guess it's one of those like the only way we get this film, this series made, is by promising we pull under this level of budget. Big cast. And they're like, ah, it's they're a sci-fi all the channel. Time. Who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> if the if the show was better, I wouldn't give a shit. Yeah. You know, but it's not. So anyway, let's go way, 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 way back. To the far-flung year of 1959. Hey. And Blake Edwards, who, of course, to me, will always be the guy who made The Pink Panther, you know, the, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, a Shot in the Dark was the first Pink Panther, if I'm not mistaken. It was. And then was The Pink Panther, and then The Pink Panther Returns, and then a bunch of really terrible films that Blake Edwards was not involved in, but um, that had Pink Panther in the title. But he, before that, made a movie called Operation Petticoat, which in and of uh, in in its own way spawned, uh, you know, uh, further existence with a TV series starring the daughter of one of the stars here, Tony Curtis. Jamie mm-hmm. Lee Curtis actually played one of the leads in the TV spinoff of Operation Petticoat. I did not know that. Indeed. Ah. Uh, but Cary Grant played the, uh, you know, the older kind of 
curmudgeonly captain of the submarine that, you know, at the pre-World War II has just been basically blown up, but he goes to the captain and, you know, the, the general of the base goes, look, like, we literally have never even sailed this fucking thing and it got blown up, but my men say they can fix it. We just need, you know, this much time and a little bit of money, these parts. The captain's like, well, if you can do it, good luck. I'll give you this much time. If you can't do it by then, we're going to just get rid of it. So uh, he has to take whatever ragtag crew he can get, including Tony Curtis, who is a, a playboy type who has always been the, the kind of guy who's like, uh, well, I just worked the social media for them. I didn't actually <laughs> pick up a gun. <laughs> and uh, he's been forced into actually becoming a, a proper Navy man here. And, you know, he's always trying to pull scam the whole time. And Cary Grant is constantly catching him in the scam. And... Part of what ends up making this wacky sea adventure is when they pick up a whole group of hot women yeah. that from an that are tra- that have been stranded on this island that are military themselves, but like that you know they can't get rid of them, and you know it gets even wackier. One at one point they're supposed to repaint the boat for reasons that the plot never makes clear at all, but they don't have the right color, so it ends up pink, which is funny because it's filled with women. So the pink submarine. Uh, yeah. You know, this film relies so much on the mores of the time that you can only really enjoy it if you're laughing at it in a sort of nostalgic for that time it, it's way. It's absolutely a period piece, but no, I'll I'll say a yeah, I mean it's it's very dated and it's not like Blake Edwards was forward-looking in his sexual politics anyway. No. I mean this guy did a shitload of of sex comedies when he wasn't doing um uh, the Pink Panther movie. But what I will say about this is that it's Blake Edwards actually being charming. It's it's whim- it's actually whimsical. It is a whimsical World War Two film, which you like. You don't see a lot of. Yeah, Cary Grant. This is it's it's not one of his top tier films, but he's obviously having fun as kind of the this guy who is absolutely straight laced and is stuck in this ridiculous situation and with this up, bunch of, of crazy losers and ends up having to sort of loosen his his moral belt when realizing the only way to get anything done on this piece of crap sub that's falling apart is by letting these guys do what they do yeah. which is tony curtis basically scamming his way into free parts and money and what have you while still trying to keep it not from going completely insane, because if Tony Curtis had his way, everybody would be drinking booze on duty and sleeping with hookers. Yeah. <laughs> which sounds like the best Navy ever. Yeah, but, you know, sounds like the Navy. Sounds like uh, the Navy, true, yeah. No, I mean, this is one of these ones that I think is, uh, it, it's lost its reputation a little bit over the past few years, because I think people, because it's regarded as, oh, well, it's dopey and daffy, and like, eh, who cares? But it's actually, it, you know, this is the kind of thing I used to watch on a Saturday afternoon in the UK. Mm. Cary Grant is great. I think it's it's one of Tony Curtis's more fun roles because sure. he's he's not super sleazy. It's pitched in this kind of this odd family friendly way, which Blake Edwards never did after that point. Uh, I mean, part of that is because it's 1959, so I think this is pretty risque for 1959. Not so risque for 1961. No. Um, I, you know, it's. It's an affable enough movie. Has the, you know, I, I was watching an older copy. How's the restoration on this disc? It looked great, actually. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, it's you know, it's from Olive Films, 
that has a sort of mixed bag as far as like the stuff they've released. One of the thing, great things about Olive Films, which are a more recent company, is they're grabbing titles that are perfectly good titles, like very really good movies that were just kind of forgotten about along the way or were just not considered to be as enduring classics as some others. A lot of their noir releases have been oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, but it's nice that somebody's upgrading this stuff to Blu-ray. Somebody's re-releasing these things. Just kind of getting a whole new film education of the stuff that fell through the cracks that's still really worth watching. And, yeah, I mean, it's not... They're not like Shout Factory or Criterion or something where they remaster it to the point you're like, wow, I can't believe they spent this much time on it. But... But it's sense, better than a, anything else version, any other version that's out there. This is a film that uh, you know was big enough at the time. I think there's probably still enough copies around that you could probably do a decent job. You're not going to have to piece, piece right. things together from. It was from very popular fragments. when it came it's out. Hugely successful. But it's film. not one of those films that like lasted the test of time as far as people still talking about it yeah. today. Um, it's and I think that's partially what you were saying. Blake Edwards. It was like right before the sexual revolution where this stuff was titter worthy in 1959, not so much two years later. Or so you're like, Oh, this is almost quaint. <laughs> the yeah, stuff I mean, that we're supposed to find of, uncomfortable. This is a kind of film where, you know, uh, uh, a bikini top and, 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 uh, shorts and a, and a kind of wah, 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 saxophone thing is supposed to make us go, this is the most erotic thing ever. <laughs> yeah. And it's just kind of chintzy. It, you know, this is, you know, I think if you if you're looking for something for for grandpa for Christmas or just something you can sit down and watch with the family where, where the kids aren't where the kids aren't going to get bored, it's kind of an okay you know classic. It's a classic holiday movie. You kind sure. of like let's, let's put that on. Oh, it's kind of nice and charming. There's no nobody's going to write a major thesis about this. No. But Cary Grant's great in it. Tony Curtis is great in it. Yeah, and it also uh, has... And it's got a pink submarine. Uh, it does. A lot of uh, actors went on to other things familiar. Gavin McLeod, who became the captain of the love boat, has a role as one of the sailors on here. Uh, Marion Ross from Happy Days. Who was a hottie when she was younger. Uh, holy the, for a holy. All the women in here uh, are really good looking. There are a lot um, of 1950s conical uh, conical bras. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I believe it's Joan O'Brien who is the one who's uh, chasing after Cary Grant, who is like, va, va, boom. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of hamana, 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 hamana in this film. Yeah, oh, I mean, that's the thing. You could, it's, like, it's, the, it's of that era. There is nothing politically correct oh, about this. Dick Sargent from Barbed oh, is in it as Dick well. Dick Sargent. Oh. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> what a name. A, a man who's, you know, the, the great sadness about the, you know, we were denied of so many great years of Dick Sargent's work because, you know, his back. Yep. Yeah, and that, that ended his career, and it's a real tragedy because, and, and if anything, you know, just an opportunity to see more of Dick Sargent's work, any anything is worth that. You're always looking great. for more Dick. I had to take it. There I we go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yay. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm going to move off this film and move on to The Unknown Known. Uh, which is another, all right, so maybe our greatest living documentarian in terms of just the sheer amount output of his work all being so good is Errol Morris, yes. who has made any number of great movies. I believe The Thin Blue Line was his launching, uh, yeah, like one that made everyone go, wow, who the fuck is this guy? I actually saw that in the theater, went, this is really good. It wasn't, it wasn't his first one. Gates of Heaven had a very strong, the, uh, um, 
uh, festival release, as did Vernon, Florida. After that, but then after Thin Blue Line, he became like everyone knew who he was. Where he Thin Blue ended Line, up doing, which he uh, should have been nominated for an Oscar, and the rule, the documentary rules at that point said that you couldn't uh, uh, have too much reenactment work. Oh, really? And therefore, he got denied. And that is that is for me is still the greatest travesty in the history of the Oscars because that is a landmark documentary. Oh, and they, yeah. They, they screwed the pooch by passing up on uh, He did Brief History of Time, of course, yeah. um, which is amazing. Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. The Fog of War, which I believe did win Best Documentary. I think it did. And this is really a a, a partner piece to The Fog of War, oh, yeah. which was uh, Robert McNamara talking about what he'd learned to Secretary of State during Vietnam. Uh, it's a phenomenal and very moving piece about a man who has had a great degree of introspection about his role in the military-industrial complex and Americans, America's increasingly aggressive and militarized foreign policy. Whereas this is not about a man who, looking back with regret or any sort of sense of reevaluation of himself at all, it's about a man who's arguably a sociopath. This is about a man who is an an unindicted war criminal in the eyes of much of the world. There's this... And, I mean, there's no such thing as a spoiler for a film like this, but the last line of it basically is like, so, the Errol Moore saying, so why are you doing this? Why are you in this film at all why are you talking to me and and donald rumsfeld's just like i have no idea yeah and and gives that big crocodile smile he's got and you're like you're in this because your ego won't let you not be yeah he is such a ridiculously huge egotist and he will turn on a dime throughout this whole thing as you know, I mean, like, Errol is not attack-piecing him at all. He is just letting him bury himself, which he does, as he'll say something that's absolute nonsense and go, but you just here, I mean, you're right here, say exactly the opposite. He's like, well, I think you're reading that wrong. What it meant was something that it clearly didn't mean. Yeah. He is unapologetically a fan of Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld is, that is. And it's all just looking at all the memos he wrote, which they used to call snowflakes, because apparently he wrote so many during his tenure, they fell like snowflakes from the sky. Uh, and just sort of getting a feeling, who is this guy? How did he get where he is? And this, this was one of the things that this film took a lot, a lot of criticism about when it was released, where people went, uh, you know, I didn't feel I really got to know Donald Rumsfeld. To a certain degree, there's nothing to know. Yeah. This guy is, is he's not a cipher. He is, uh, he is a, a sheet of paper. Yeah. He has no intellectual control. He's a smart guy. There's no denying he's smart. But the fact that he releases all these memos, he's just writing memos and memos and memos. And you're thinking, there's no time in your life where you're not just spewing everything in your brain out on these pieces of paper. They just can't be. Um, and it, 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 like I said, I, mean, I think this makes a perfect double bill with Fog of War. Um, you have Rumsfeld, there's an explanation of where he comes from, not just as a, a an individual, but the political context of how you end up with this generation of chicken hawks that dictated um, neoliberal policy on... Did you mean chicken hawks? Yeah. Those are people who try to have sex with young boys. Uh, it, it's also a term for... Um, uh, People who uh, are uh, pro-war but not, uh, but never actually go to war themselves. Well, you can see why that's confusing. Yeah, you can. <laughs> and I bet it's, you often they're the same people. <laughs> uh, they, there's some. Con- uh, yeah, Bill Hicks had a few routines about that. And the, the Rumsfeld is basically a survivor of the Nixon era and just really resents some of the changes. There's this whole cadre of people who survived and don't really like each other. 
uh, there's definitely some tension between him um, and people like Karl Rove, but they, they just all hang on. And his ability to throw other people under the bus and just about survive until he finally becomes Secretary of State. Uh, 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 Secretary one, of Defense. Secretary of Defense, rather, but one of the most dangerous times in American uh, political history and helps shape you know, the quagmire in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you're just they're going, there's no moment where you realize you should have made a different decision. You know, you did what you did, and therefore it must be right because you're you. And you, you're right. This is a portrait of a sociopath. And it's typical, it's Errol Morris's defined style um, of he's got this this camera set next to the the interviewee and therefore but he's got a mirror arrangement so the interviewer interviewee is looking at the lens but thinks they're looking at him he, he, he's built this whole mechanism up for doing this and it, it works so well he's never had to change it so it's just donald rumsfeld exposing how empty his soul is for an hour and a half which is kind of brutal in a way because you go that it's it's the mundanity of evil yeah and that's really what this is about this guy who just does not get that people would be angry about it and just sees you know every disagreement about what america did and why it did it post 9-11 he's just like well you know that's just a difference of interpretation of a policy document no it's not it's about a lot more than that there's a uh, only a few instances where morris feels the need to actually come in and show see what a liar he is footage. Yeah. One of the most striking moments in this whole thing for me was where he's going, so, almost saying, so you really don't think America was confused by the hunt from Saddam Hussein and the connection to 9-11? You don't really think that, that America didn't think you were saying Saddam Hussein funded 9-11? He's like, no, I don't think America had any confusion that that was the case at all. No, I think America was very clear that these were two totally separate things. And then, you know, you're like going, look, I remember specifically him saying exactly the opposite. And sure enough, the film shows a series of footage of him being extremely clear that what they meant to say was Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11. You're like, you will lie and say whatever it takes with a big smile on your face and charm to get what you want because ultimately your goal isn't what's good for America. It's not what's good for business. It's what's good for Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. And your whole career has been about chasing that. I mean, fuck, if even Nixon saw through you, yeah. which there's some of the Watergate tapes they play where they're talking about as soon as we're done with the shit going on right now, we're going to dump Rumsfeld. He's kind of a schmuck. <laughs> you know, Wow. He is the Peter Principle writ, writ large and on the international scale. <laughs> Indeed. And, and the fact that, the, yeah, like you said, the, the, he was prepared to sit down with Errol Morris, a noted liberal documentarian, not least, I think, because nobody else had ever gone to him and go, hey, I want to do a documentary about him, because you automatically presume he's not going to want to talk to you. Yeah. This is this is a great piece. I mean, it, it continues. One day, you know, there will be the big box set of everything Errol Morris ever, ever did. And it'll be and it's well worth be watching. Unmissable. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, essential documentary stuff. It's got a commentary by Earl Morris, uh, a, a eight, eight and a half minute conversation with Morris where he talks about his purpose behind meeting the film, uh, making the film, meeting with Rumsfeld, uh, the third annual report of the Secretaries of Defense, which is a roundtable recorded in 1989, um, which I guess, I didn't watch it, but I guess yeah, I mean, some if light you, on Yeah, if this. these names mean anything to you, uh, you know, You've got Frank Carlucci, Casper Weinberger, James Schlesinger, Robert McNamara, and Donald Rumsfeld. Between them, you know, guys who did more to shape U.S. foreign policy 
than any other cadre, really, in, in the post-war period. Uh, this is an unmissable document of, of you know, these as a transition point. It's eighty nine. This is this is when you know the the post Glasnost um, American foreign policy was forged, and you have some of the people who were most responsible for that transition in the room. That is an unmissable thing, uh, as well as a four part text thing called "The Certainty of Donald Rumsfeld," written by Errol Morris that you can read here on the thing. So ultimately, you've got a great political documentary here. Um, but I'm trying to, or God, have we, we are actually doing really good on time considering how many <laughs> titles we've already been through here. But I guess I'm going to go to the next documentary, which is for me, my pick of the week. Absolutely. I mean, as many great titles as I've seen this week, nothing moved me, stimulated my imagination and my intellect and just left me thinking about it more than Jodorowsky's Dune, uh, uh, 2013, even though I think it ended up officially coming out theatrical release in 2014. Uh, yeah, it did. Um, documentary by Frank Pavich that takes a look at something you, most of you, I, I, you know, before this movie came out, I guarantee you like one out of a thousand of you had heard of, which is that the director Alejandro Jodorowsky, pretty much the, the best cinematic surrealist ever, you know, like the master of it. He almost made Dune. Frank Herbert's Dune. I knew about it because I've been a Jodorowsky fan yeah. since like time immemorial, pretty much. But and I knew about it because uh, uh, I, I think I first heard when I read some really early articles about Alien and the fact that H.R. Geiger was like, "Oh yeah," and I had some ideas and like some old designs that I bought over from this failed project with, with uh, Jodorowsky, and I, I adapted them and moved them over to to Alien. That's the fascinating thing about this movie that talks with the incredibly likable, although once again, a huge egotist, but like so charming and fun Alejandro Jodorowsky. I mean, he is like as much as his films paint him as like, God, he must be completely insane. He's actually like very affable, very charismatic, very, you know, easy to talk to very European, uh, you know, I mean, he is the host of his own film, basically talking about everything that's happened. I mean, he's the center of it that he's just so likable. You want to give him a big hug. But as you, this goes on, as he's talking about, oh yeah, you know, after the Holy Mountain and El Topo made me kind of a cult figure, especially overseas, but this producer said, what do you want to do? You can do anything. He's like, I want to do Frank Herbert's Dune. And real, I knew that and I knew some advance work had been going on, but knowing how close in 1974, keep in mind, this is before Star Wars, but after 2001, how close this movie came to actually being made as a major theatrical production and as uh as uh nicholas whining reffin opines early on in here imagine how things might have been different in our cinematic history if this had supplanted star wars and alien and a whole ton of other movies as being done first how things might have ended up being different and that's really the point where you just start imagining. And this film does nothing but continue to let you fast, you know, put this picture together of, my God, what would this have been? And make it fascinating. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn talks about going to Jodorowsky's house with his giant book yeah. uh, of Dune where he's assembled everything, all the storyboards he did with the artist uh, Mobius. Um, and, like, as he sent sat with him for like six hours and read to him through the whole thing, everything that was going to happen, the whole deal. And Nicholas Winding Refn is like, I may be the only person who's quote seen Dune. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, going with like, 
where they're going and talking to Pink Floyd and and Magma and uh, as, to do music for it. With Dan O'Bannon doing the special effects, who went on to do Alien, amongst other things. Salvador Dali, Orson Welles, David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Gloria Swanson for the cast. Yeah. I mean, and it just keeps getting crazier with the little stuff it layers on here, only to eventually sort of flower open and really reveal the ways in which all these things that were being built at length over the two years this film was in development, how they all became the backbone structure for all these other classic films that came after. Well, I mean, I really liked this film to a point. Um, I think it's, I think it's fascinating because it does say, look, here's this project that got so many important and significant artistic figures of the 20th century on board. Um, and then it, it only hints at one, at something. And there's a couple of moments where, you know, Devin Faraci pointed to this and, uh, Michael Soro, who was his, uh, the producer of it, where they basically very politely go, this was never going to get made. No. This thing could not happen. And it's, no. and that's it's the half of the story that, that director Frank Pavich kind of teases towards that you basically got Jodorowsky who and and there is an interesting scene towards the end where you know Pavich clearly like sets him up as kind of this this artistic heroic figure. And there's a couple of things he says near the end where you just go what a dick. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, what there's one comment he makes about adapting a book that is, I actually found really personally disturbing. And it's worth watching for getting to that point where you kind of go, huh. And Pavich, I think he kind of is in love with his subject and doesn't want to say, this guy could never get this film made. He could envision it. And it had these the results of Dan O'Bannon being able to go off and do stuff, and Chris Foss being you know a great science fiction uh, uh, cover artist doing things, and Magma you know slipping slipping off and, do, and doing other great stuff. But then you kind of sat and go, this guy couldn't do it. This film would never have happened, as he says, it would have been fourteen hours long. And then he bitches and said, well, today people are used to long form narrative. It's like you still couldn't have pulled this off in fourteen hours because the first the first episode would have been a single tracking shot. You're insane. Yeah, no, I I completely agree <laughs> with you actually. But I think there's a point in this as well, about three quarters of the way through, where they start talking about how Jadarowski's starting to just. He's starting to get chipped away his resolve of realizing he's not going to be able to make this exactly how he wants to make yeah. this. That he's going to have to co- uh, collaborate with a major studio. That he's going to have to figure out ways to make this more accessible to audiences. And he's starting to sway towards those ideas. Which is those the point where you go, okay, the project as it was, no, would never have been made. But... There is, it feels like, as they discussed earlier about the Holy Mountain itself, that feels like a film that was made in a parallel dimension yeah. where movies are just made like that. <laughs> you know, this feels like you start getting to that point, like you can envision the parallel dimension in which this did finally actually get made with both sides having to, yeah. you know, change their minds about lots of stuff in order to get it done. And you still want to All this, this a, is a heaven's gate style tank that takes down a studio, yeah, exactly. yeah, <laughs> which mean, is never even suggested. It's like, Oh no, it would have had an impact. It was like, no. And it could have been a, a, a class for a career ending for I mean, everyone involved. I mean, what's it, what's interesting is it makes the point that like, there's a lot of people who are inspired by, uh, by this, who start working together because they were brought together as a, as a team on this. I think there's also, there are a, it does overstretch. There's one moment where they go, well, yeah, look at films that were inspired. And there's a point where they go, well, 
Flash Gordon had a circular throne room, and so did so did Jodorowsky's designs. Uh, and I'm like, no, that you're pushing it. Your point. It's a, it's a little too in love with its own subject matter, but it is a fascinating, fascinating subject matter. This is this is about the line where creativity becomes hubris. Yeah, okay. and it's it's a and <laughs> it's, it's it's a great companion piece with the the uh, Don Quixote making a film about Terry Gilliam where yeah. it has very similar like that sort of just dreaming too big forgetting about realities of situations except and, and in both cases God throwing down a lightning bolt and saying nope nope no. <laughs> or in this this case it's more the studios going yeah this ain't gonna happen it's is not it, gonna happen. is it sunshine go go off and make uh, uh, Santa Sangre instead it's odd thinking that you know all these years later uh, years after that they gave it to David Lynch, who yeah. became a director who at points is just as weird as Alejandro Jodorowsky is in his career. But at that point in his career, he wasn't. <laughs> you like you wonder if it was doing the research for Dune that drove David Lynch crazy. Yeah, there is, there is one omission in, in this documentary that I, 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 you know, considering how much archive material they use, particularly because people like Dan O'Bannon are dead. Uh, you never really get a feeling for what Frank Herbert thought about this whole process because Jodorowsky throws big chunks of the narrative out or adds stuff sure. in and there's, you know, there's some really pivotal changes. When he like, said he wanted to do it, he had never even read it. He yeah. just had all these friends who were like, no, it's great, you should do it. And he was just <laughs> like, yeah, he actually admits, oh, you know, when the studio came to me and said, you can do whatever you want, he went, Dune? It was like, like it was the last word that had been said to him or something. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> like a cat personality or yeah something. i mean it's a, it's a fascinating portrait of, of you need to be a megalomaniac to be a director i yeah. think that that's inevitable but then there's the point where you're where you have to go well isn't the purpose of a producer to say well this shit ain't gonna happen and the, you know it you know michael sorrow uh the producer kind of isn't in, it, it, it talks about you know, they stopped working for 35 years after this failed. And I would, I could have done with a little bit more about why, Sora, you know, how badly they fell apart. Because they had worked closely before and then suddenly, like, they just go in different directions. That would have been re- a bit more interesting. I, it, he, Pavich could have taken the time on that, I think, uh, because this is only 88 minutes. Yeah, and it could have easily taken that little bit of breathing room. And it's a lesson as well to when get people who've always been left on their own devices to do what they want. I mean, Alejandro broke union rules in Spain said, fuck that. I'm, you're going to tell me what art I can make and I can't make? Go fuck yourself. And went ahead and made his movie anyway that shocked everyone and then kept going, doing the same thing. And people fell in love with him in, in, uh, on the continent where they're like, oh my God, who is this guy? This, you're not allowed to do this. We love it. And then when it was time to actually have to talk to like people who had to spend millions of dollars on yeah. something, it was he was like, "I don't understand what's happening. Why aren't you just letting me do what I want?" Yeah, when you when you want put nine point five million dollars of somebody else's money, you better have a good pitch. Um, yeah, it's like uh, the story of what happened after Donnie Darko, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Yeah, that's a, that could probably have a documentary in and of itself of what went horribly, horribly wrong. Well, this has got a bunch of deleted scenes in. Here. A whole bunch of extended deleted scenes. Um, uh, there's a, a theatrical trailer for, for for the film itself, but that's it. it Would have been nice if there was more on here for such a, a film that got yeah, so much kudos. This some year. deleted scenes that are, that didn't add anything. They mm. kind of they got yeah. I think that those are wise cuts. But uh, you know, I think this is about much more than Alejandro Jodorowsky and Dune, and that's the best way to approach it, really. And to just l- let it let yourself fantasize about 
like yeah. some of the cool stuff they were dreaming of. And what if it would, you know, implausible as it is, what if it had happened? How, how, how would things be different? Yeah. It's I'm fun. Not, I'm not saying I didn't like this, but it's, it's not my pick of the week. I have to say, I well, think yours that, is that, the raid too. That, that's probably going to be the raid too, or because I am such a politics wonk, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the unknown known, uh, that I think one of, one of those two for very, very different reasons. Fair enough. And those are both very valid choices, but we have moved to the final, uh, uh, release of the week, which is also our giveaway. giveaway. That was nice. I like that. I know, very it wasn't really harmony, but I don't know what it was. It's good enough for me. The last one is The Legend of Korra Book 2. Hey! And you guys are going to be happy to hear we have three Blu-rays to give away to you of this set of the continuing story in the world of Avatar, the apparently not last airbender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you lied to me, Ang! The penultimate airbender! But not even that. Now, I, if you haven't seen the, uh, any of this, one, go back and watch the entirety of the original series, Avatar, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. A uh, phenomenal, nuanced, clever animation about uh, a world where people can manipulate the individual elements and there's only, there's one child who can manipulate all of them. He is the avatar. This is a, a kind of a Buddha figure uh, that goes down through the ages. Um, Except who is basically has the per- more of the personality of a child. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's, you know, 12. He's precocious. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, beautiful, tender. This is the sequel. It is set uh a little, a little under a century after the uh, the first series, it deals with what happened afterwards, um, and the new avatar Korra, uh, who is from the Water Tribe. The first series was about her dealing with the issues of being of being a, a, a bender, as they are called, um, and what that means for non-bending humans. Uh, and not being terribly great at the one that she's supposed to be the best at. Yes. As an avatar, which is airbending. Yeah. Uh, she's like, I just don't get this whole airbending she thing. Ha- she has, she uh, has all of the, you know, the same thing with Ang. Ang couldn't get his head around firebending because there's a personality issue. There's a personality issue. And this is about personality growth. She is, she's impetuous. That's her, her problem. Whereas Ang was too flighty, could, didn't understand self control. And so there's, there's a di- real, difference in nuance of this uh, between the two series uh season two uh deals with the spirit world and, and builds up on, on the backstory of there's this other realm beyond the mortal realm of somebody uh, at nickelodeon watched a bunch of hayao miyazaki films clearly and said, we need to put this shit in our show clearly <laughs> miyazaki is a huge influence uh on on this season um and probably much more so in season three with the way it ends but, uh you know, just... yeah it's gonna be very they are reshaping the world in a quite dramatic way um the idea is that there were more spirits in the world before um an agreement uh, you know the first avatar uh, push them back out um, to create a truce between uh, the human world and uh, the spirit world. You get to see a great secret, a great two-parter uh, set in, in relaying that history of what happened to send the spirits out and how the first Avatar came about. It's a very different style of animation. It works 
beautifully. It was. I, it's my highlight of the entirety yeah. of the, all the Avatar stuff so far. In fact, that two-parter showing the story of the first Airbender, I loved it to pieces so much. I was really sad when it went back to the pregnant <laughs> story. I was like, no, I want more of him. He was so cool. But the main narrative of this season is that Korra um, is of the Water Tribe, who are basically. They're basically Inuits. They're basically yeah. Eskimo tribes. Uh, and the Northern tribe, who are much more, you know, have big cities, um, decide they're going to take over the Southern Water tribe, which is where her family comes from. And it's a brother issue, as yeah, it turns there's a, out. Uh, and there's a lot of plot about brother... Uh, uh, that's what the, really the underlying theme is... Um, bonds between brothers because you have the two brothers who are both chiefs of the tribes at war with each other um you have the uh, the two brothers who were uh, on her um professional uh, earth bending her professional bending team in the first season which kind of was that wasn't my favorite plot point that built up beautifully here with bolin who's kind of the dumber of the two uh appearing in propaganda films yeah i love the way they've sort of made this about like you know, early World War Two era type story yeah. now, and with all the things around there about you know war and propaganda and war profiteering. Uh, the guy who is kind of the war profiteer villain here is one of my favorite characters of the season. Varric. Uh, <laughs> he's awesome, played by John Michael Higgins. Such a great character. I just loved him to pieces, despite the fact ultimately he's a war profiteer. <laughs> you know? uh, but a lot of you know a lot of good people again in this. A lot of good stories. It's it's just so much smarter in the way it's trying to uh, what it's trying to say about wartime, about peacetime, about like trust, uh, about family than ninety nine percent of the other series out there that are animated or similar in any way. Yeah. You know, it's I it keeps elevating well above the, the you know the source material, and I fell in love with the show all over again by the end of it. And uh, not to give a, a spoiler away, uh, this does hark back a lot more to the original Ang stories as you build up what's happening with his with his children. They become much bigger characters. You have this sense of sibling rivalry amongst them. There is a beautiful and very very sensibly handled cameo that uh, that about midway through the season. Yes. That if you are a fan of the original Adventures of Aang, there will be a tear in your eye of recognition because you're just like, you, this is a series that it doesn't do fan service, but it understands the audience perfectly. I mean, if, honestly, I think this is one that, this isn't just one of the smartest pieces of kids TV. This is one of the smartest pieces of TV. Uh, the big difference between this and the, the Ang episodes is that that was all plotted out as a three season arc. And I went back and rewatched them with my wife recently. And really saw how cleanly they had they had laid laid seeds for what happened in season three right from episode one of season one. Yeah, you know, just perfectly put together. This was supposed to be a standalone one season show, uh, and it was so successful and so beloved. And I can't believe Cartoon Nickelodeon went, oh, maybe they won't want more. Uh, that was just the craziest call ever. They they build out season two brilliantly. And they're already confirmed there will be a season three. Yeah, I which, think it already started, in fact. Yes, it has. Yeah, I correct myself. I'm <laughs> which, working uh, behind on my DVR and being so good. Slightly uh, smaller gap than between season one and two, which was more like two and a half years oh, or something it was, like that. It was a crazy <laughs> annoying gap. So, yeah, this is really, you know, they, 
and it's going to be fascinating to see where they go after that because I think a three three season arc works for this. But you can go back and you could go forward and do more more avatars. You could go back and Cora proves that the that the model works. And I will say there's I do have criticisms of this, which is that I think it starts a little slow. It starts a little unsteady on its feet, and part of that is the is the reason there's a new animation team for like the first five or so episodes of this, and you can tell something is off. Something just doesn't feel the same. It's not the same people who did the masterful animation on the first season. And then after the first Avatar uh, episodes, which is where they brought them back in, they switch over fully on to them being in charge again, and it shows. It looks better. It flows better. It's just, It just seems like a better show after that. So if you're a little uncomfortable with it at first, stick with it. I mean, it's not like it's bad or anything. It just feels a little off. It does, it will win you over. One of the things I really loved was Aubrey Plaza, who voiced Eska, who is a very deadpan, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> a, a northern water tribe girl with a twin brother that goes everywhere. The whole Eska Desna plotline of like, you're not quite sure. Initially, you're not quite sure which gender they are. Yeah. And then she suddenly decides that Bolin is going to be her boyfriend. Yeah. And he has no choice about this yeah, she's at like, all. The, the, like this, like, she's not evil. She's just, like, always used to getting her way and never actually had anyone show interest in her before. So... Because she's frightening. Yeah, because she's frightening. And Plaza was the perfect choice to voice her. Yeah. But yeah, really solid. Um, I believe we've... Uh, like I said, we've got three copies to give away with this. There's a... Uh, as far as extra features here... Um, uh, there's 14 audio commentaries by the creators and members of the creative crew, which is pretty impressive. Most shows don't bother putting one with pretty much every episode, which is pretty nice. There's a retelling of Korra's journey, which is nice. So that way you can, I love the things. I wish every television season release would do this, where it just has a whole thing that sums up everything that's happened up until this point. Yeah. So you don't go, wait, what was that? I mean, it's 34 minutes. So it's like an episode in and of itself. That's just like, here's all of season one, basically. Very, very, very cool. Um, and uh, various other small little featurettes here. Well worth your time. And you know what? Three of you are going to win it. What you need to do is make sure you're following uh, at one of us, Nat, first off. Go ahead and do it. We'll wait. On Twitter. On tw- on Twitter, yeah. If yes. you do that on, Clarify. on Tumblr or something, it will do you no good. <laughs> <laughs> um, or standing outside our front door. Can I have the Blu-ray? Uh, in your eyes. Like, <laughs> oh if you God. come, if you come home tonight and there's just fifty people stood outside with boomboxes and and trench coats, it's your own fault. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that's why I'm being very clear now. Don't do that. You win <laughs> nothing except a trip to the police station. Uh, you, what you want want to do is hashtag core giveaway. And you know what? What should they do? What should they have to do in their tweet to to win Ooh, it? I know, right? That is. I always decide, so I'm leaving this one to you. Okay, the first series of Avatar was set in basically a kind of mystical feudal Japan. The second se- season is set in a steam is heavily steampunk era. What era would you like to see the next season of Avatar set in, and why? There you go. So now you know. And hashtag it. Hashtag it Cora giveaway, and we will pick the three best winners, and Brian will get in touch with you through the One of Us Net Twitter account and let you know if you won. So thank you very much. Yep. And we still have to do questions. Questions! Questions from fans. Should we open the letterbox? We should open the letterbox. box. 
Looking at the questions here. Wow, we got 23 questions from fans here, which is pretty good considering I just put up the post two hours ago. Um, I, I have to ask, Craig Thompson asked, because he's from England, what's your favorite biscuit, chalky or sans chocolate? Mine's a Jaffa cake, although it's probably technically a small sponge. I don't know what any of that means. Well, technically, uh, the difference between a biscuit... Uh, and a cake. Uh, this is this is completely true. This is this is. I'm dropping some serious fucking snack <laughs> knowledge on you. The difference in a biscuit, aka a cookie, and a cake, is that a cake dries out when you leave it on the side, and a biscuit gets soggy. That is completely. That's that is how you can tell the difference. If you get them and it like it gets soft, it's a biscuit, aka a cookie. If it dries out, cake. Uh, huge fan that. of the Jaffa cake. That if you never no had sense. it, you really, you really need to have one. They're awesome. Um, uh, and is that like a Vera cake? No, it's a. It, in, it's in a basically. Cora, like a, you know, they've got Vera. Cakes. Oh yeah, it kind yeah. of is. Yeah. Uh, but it's like a sponge, little sponge base, and then this little bit of um, orangey jelly stuff on top. Are we talking about diaphragms? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and then chocolate on top of that. They're wonderful. You, okay. you need to have them in your life. Um, I'm uh, yeah, I'm I'm very pro uh, chocolate hobnob. There you go. Dark chocolate hobnob. That's, my, that's the answer no. to, to the question. I can't get that here, so... You can, actually. To me. You can. I can? Yeah. Is there, like, like there's lots of Mexican bakeries. Are there English bakeries? Uh, Fiesta. Fiesta Supermarket. Oh, right. Stops yeah, them. sure. They sure. have, they have dark chocolate hobnobs, and they're excellent. Oscar Jones says, Seeing the success of Hannibal, Fargo, and Bates Motel, are there any films you would want to see become a TV series? I believe this has the potential of expanding universes. I would love to see The Running Man turned into an adventure series. Oscar. Well, I think I've already been more than a bit clear I would like to see TV series or continuing stories of Big Trouble in Little China and Buckaroo Banzai across the Eighth Dimension. Yeah. Well, those, those, are, those are stellar choices. Uh, those are almost just built in, like, no-duh choices. I'm going to say Blade Runner. They did do a series of Blade Runner. No, but I'd like a decent one. Except they called it Total Recall. Wah, wah. No, but no, did you ever watch that TV series? Yeah, it really was. Yeah, it was Blade Runner. It had almost nothing to do with but Total I'd, Recall. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like Blade Runner, not least because then that might stop uh, Ridley Scott from fucking up. True, uh, which he will. The, yeah. Not oh god! Did you see like the trailer for uh, his his new Exodus? It's like uh, I want some of that big Noah money. No, you don't. No, Prometheus. Uh, yeah, please stop, Ridley Scott. Literally, like I mean, like it, it's time. You know, you you left your mark. Stop screwing it up. <laughs> yep. Uh let's see. Uh, what are my favorite movie cats or Macy Kerr? It do- does it matter? It's any cat that's in a movie, except there's always that point. If you watch an older film where you know the cat is dead now, that it's like bittersweet. You're like, aw, that cat's no longer with us. Oh, uh, I mean, uh, obviously Jonesy from the aliens. Yeah. Aw, uh, Oscar Bal- Baldessari Vera, um, asks, uh, what movie pet peeves do you do you guys have? It, it's not a movie pet peeve, it's a movie-going pet peeve. For the love of God, if you sit there and you jiggle your foot in the auditorium, I will hack it off. <laughs> that this drives me like, crazy. Oh, like, who thinks this is acceptable behavior? Is, and they sit there, they'll sit there, and they don't realize they're shaking the entire row of seats. They're all connected. I will lean over and say, stop that. Yeah. I actually grabbed somebody's foot once in an auditorium and went, you stop that right now. Yeah. Just no, because yep. of the level of raw fury. That's a lot of fury. Arr. 
You need to process that fear. <laughs> uh, Michael Scaly, Scaly, Scaly says, has there been a director's cut that made the film look worse in your eyes? Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko. Was, was <laughs> definitely <laughs> one where you, you go, well, really looking forward to the director's cut. There was all this pomp and circumstance about like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And then it totally fucks it up. Well, I, I think we, we have had a classic example there of a director who like, yeah, less is more. Yeah. Southland Tales. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. I don't yeah. know why we're picking on Richard Kelly so much this week, but oh. there you go. <laughs> it's Christmas. Uh, um, as well, you know, some people say Apocalypse Now. I don't agree, actually. I prefer the Redux version of Apocalypse Now, but I understand the argument for not liking it as much. I mean, obviously, it makes it untenably long. Yeah. Uh, but I... does need a piss break. Yeah. Uh, but I understand the argument. Uh, I, I feel like there's a big one we're missing, and I can't remember what it is as far as that goes. Well, you know my feeling on the uh, Lord of the Rings extended cuts. Oh, God. Life's not long enough. And yet you like the prequels. Well, I don't get it. <laughs> can you imagine a Hobbit extended cut? Six, I, okay, more, I, six more hours of introducing I, dwarves. I watched the Hobbit extended cut, and even I sped it up a little bit in the Shire <laughs> section. <laughs> um, uh, Tom Bonner says, Digital noise, are you burned out on zombie films? What scenario would you like to see be explored within a zombie film? You know, uh, if I was going to, if even, if I was even capable of being burned out on a film, I wouldn't be able to do this for a living. Uh, I'm not burned out on zombie films. It's like any other genre. There's going to be bad ones and there's going to be good ones. Yeah, it's like saying are you burned out on rom-coms. Yeah. You know, if, if, it, if it's done well, um, you know, I, I, the thing is, I think everybody has been saying, oh, uh, the zombie genre is burned out. I think probably since Fido. Yeah. Like, every, everybody says this, and then it's like, something comes along that, that's good and interesting. And I'm not sure why it, why it is that zombies seem to get singled out for this kind of treatment. It's like, you know, there's going to be an ebb and flow. I'm sure they'll go away for a few years. I mean, they went away in the uh, in the early 90s. Nobody made zombie movies. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, Delamorte de la Mort, uh was so the good. last zombie movie made in Italy for about 10 years. So they, yeah. they ebb and flow. Uh, and if you're going to come up with something interesting like that, uh, I'm still on board with, with Walking Dead. But yeah, we've had some good stuff and we've had some lousy stuff. But, yeah. you know, it's I mean, like, meh. Uh, every time somebody says it's dead, something else comes out new that goes, really? Like the, the Returned, the new French show, which is yeah. evolving into a zombie show, is wonderful. Warm Bodies, which is was, was really charming yeah. and really good fun. And, and nah, I want to watch that again now. You know, and the fact that he actually has, you know, it doesn't gloss around the fact that the romantic lead ate somebody's boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, oh, Justin, last question. Justin Zarian says, what are some of your all-time music, favorite music videos? I'm teaching an intro to film class this upcoming semester, and I'd love to show off superior examples of music video filmmaking to diver diversify my lesson material. Well, you're going to have to look at Michelle Gondry first off. I mean, that's really, for me, your starting point for greatest music video director of all time. There are two collections you can get of just his music videos that are out there, and they are both just absolutely wonderful. I mean, the only reason I even started listening to Bjork at all, like, cause somebody who I really didn't appeal to me uh, was after I got the first set watching the music videos Gondry did for her that are jaw dropping. Yeah. Just earth shattering, incredible mini films for those things. Just so well done. I, I, I'd also go with, you know, Spike Jones has done some great stuff, and there's a, there's a collection of some of his. Anton Corbijn. Uh, Anton, Anton Corbijn, which, uh, you know, I mean, he's a great 
artist anyway. You look at the stuff that he did for Depeche Mode, and it's 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 some of the only videos from the early 80s that have survived as something you can still watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff like um, Question of Time, just a phenomenal video. Uh, so I'd always, I'd always go with, with uh, Corbett. Um, if you want a really good example of a, fi- a soundtrack video where they've just done it, taken clips from the soundtrack and constructed uh, the video for the you know, for the the soundtrack, um, one of my all time favorite films, and I will bore people to death talking about how <laughs> wonderful this is, Streets of Fire, uh, the track tonight's one means to be young, oh, good which is just constructed from clips, and the editing is so tight and makes so much sense and doesn't make you feel like oh they used a cheesy clip from there, but it actually makes you go I want to see the rest of this film. It's it's music video as both promo for the song but also promo for the film and it works fabulously oh, you've got a list john landis thriller of course yeah which was groundbreaking when it happened i mean it really was the defining point where people stopped looking at music videos as just a little cheap extra that you had to do on a radio station for 14 year olds on tv to something that could be taken as seriously as art uh and then the peter gabriel videos off so for yeah. sledgehammer and a, i think big time was the other yeah. one that were all using claymation and various types of other stop motion animation to to make just beautiful image montages. But yeah, this is, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess OK Go is the modern thing to go that I, you've got to quote. I so. actually, um, OK Go supported um, one of my favorite bands, Say Anything. And I was like, yeah, their set's OK. And it's like, and at the end they went, OK, you probably know us from the internet, from that one we did with from the, the dance routine we did in, in my sister's backyard. Huh. Um we're just going to do that. And they had, they just played, they had some, they just played the audio track and they did the entire dance routine on stage. And we're all like, that's, that's impressive because not only are you really good at this, but you understand that people are like, oh no, they're not going to be able to do that live. Cause like, how can they do that live? And they did it live. And I hear that on some later tours, they actually found, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, walking machines. Uh, the treadmills, yeah. and actually did the ones for uh, did uh, here we here, here we go again. Did that live as well. And their latest one with the Rube Goldberg machine is brilliant. They yeah. they they understand how to do this nonsense. Uh, I was going to say Window Liquor, which I believe is Anton Corbin uh, by Aphex Twin, yeah. as well as Come, Come to, to Daddy, Daddy yes. which is th- maybe the single most disturbing image I've ever seen on filmed on video ever. Yeah, as this weird mutant creature is just screaming at this old woman. It was yeah, like, oh, it gives me the chills up the back of my neck. Just thinking about it just so avoid disturbing. anything by you two because like the level of smugness will just engulf <laughs> you know like a pointless pointless shot come on they're the world's band richard they're the world's band when when aliens come to earth we know, you know we're gonna send you two up to say hi can, can we just shoot you two into space right now <laughs> Just cut to the chase. Just seems quicker and easier. We're getting the thumbs up. My girlfriend agrees. We're getting the thumbs up on that one. Fuck them. (laughs) Under a blood red sky because you two exploded in it. Do do you remember that marvelous point in their career when when uh, this bunch of four guys from from uh, Ireland suddenly discovered their belt their Delta Blues roots? It was so authentic. That was kind of the turning point. (sighs) I actually really liked them before the rattle and hum. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, what just happened? This is, no. This is like when Metallica dis- discovered that expensive producers could change their sound. I, I 
still have friends who believe the Virgin Prunes should have been the more successful band out of Ireland at that time. <laughs> uh, there you go. Anyway, moving back onto anyway, topic, we probably should leave now. Yes, we probably should leave now. Thank you very We've much, had a people. long show. Thank you for listening to Digital Noise. We'll be back again next week, but there's probably going to be a break after that. Hiatus. Yeah, hiatus for at least a week, maybe a little bit more. <laughs> Until your um, livers can get, recover. Exactly. Well, I'll be, I'll be actually in... California for 10 days because uh, I'm going out first to LA to watch the uh, final episode of the zombie podcast. That I'm a huge fan of we're alive. They're doing the final episode. Then we're going out to party with those guys afterwards and then going to uh, San Diego comic-con where I'll be hanging out with Brian. And then a lot of you guys as well. Thank you to Mike and Tom Croxton to friends out there who have facilitated this entire trip. And it's basically the reason why it's happening at all. Uh, but yes, please. If you want to win those t- copies of legend of Korra, you know what to do, and uh, I guess that's it. Bye! Um, I usually say that thing, but, you know. Do it! Uh, you know you want to. Uh, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Catastrophe to Criterion, we review them all. Yay! Humbug. Ha! Ha! <laughs> <laughs>